And now, this same person asks, so why do you suggest buying land if the white supremacists may come along and flood that land out? Same reason you would buy a loaf of bread. You're just trying to help yourself the best way you can. I mean, sometimes it's better to buy land than to buy a fancy car. Just under 9,000 people live in Wilkinson County, two hours southeast of Atlanta. It's one of those places, almost that cliche of small-town America. All of us pretty much know each other around here, so, you know, we yeah. are, I noticed that. I feel like everybody's yeah. saying hello and hugging. And oh, the- yeah, we, are, we know everybody. Everybody know each other. It's just like everybody hugging, everybody hollering. Everybody hugging, everybody hollering. That's Jared Thomas taking a break outside the only gas station in the county seat, Irwinton. It's where she works, and it's one of the few places in town to gather other than the dollar store across the street. At the gas pump, people catch up. It's good to see you, Miss Joanne. Hey, bud. Wilkinson County is also the place that Ashley Scott's family and 18 other black families, they live in the metro Atlanta area, chose to buy a plot of land to eventually build a new city, the city of freedom. The land lies a few miles away, just outside the town of Toomsboro. I came down to Toomsboro after the whole unrest and the pandemic and George Floyd being murdered and Maude Aubrey being murdered and then feeling really just like, where do we go from here? And kind of depressed in a way, to the point where I actually was even seeing a black psychologist. Scott and I walk up the hill of the about 97 acres the families purchased last year. She and a close friend from church, Renee Walters, were feeling that same sense of depression and urgency. Both professional black women raising black children in a country where it can be really dangerous to be a black person. So when Walter saw online that a whole town was for sale outside of Atlanta, Scott, a real estate agent, went to check it out. Turns out the town of Toomsboro was not for sale, but hundreds of acres of land was. And so they bought some. The vision, a safe haven for black families. It's really an act of rebellion, for lack of a better word. An act of rebellion. To say that... We can choose and self-determine for ourselves the kinds of communities we deserve and desire and choose elected officials and people who are connected to the community from the ground up from the very beginning. There's nothing here. Nothing here, a fresh start. The families co-founded and created the Freedom Georgia initiative. From the clearing at the top of the hill for miles, all you see are shades of green. We're looking over some valleys, hills, and tree ridges that stay green and full of life because of the creek that goes through. It's a Saturday. A few of the families play music and sing along as they clean out a 40-foot storage container where they store supplies for camping and events. Amber Payne sweeps the empty container clean before they start putting things back. I envision a future for black people, not just us, but for black people, like just to be a model and then just to change the whole country, kind of. After Payne's done, her husband checks the ATVs and we stand by the bonfire in the clearing where the families plan to build forever homes. We look out at the land below where she hopes to see a future city of freedom. 
The plan is to farm the land, build a ranch, shops, recreation and healing centers, multifamily homes. They want to bring employment to this county that's about 36 percent black and 57 percent white and where nearly a fifth of people live in poverty. They also want to become a food source for the county and welcome other black people from around the country to visit or live and heal from racial trauma. So when you hear Freedom Georgia, what does that mean to you? A place to be free. Like I don't, I just envision black people, a black town. Just living, like living the best possible lives that we could, we can. <laughs> Since that first purchase, the initiative has bought 404 more acres that they'll develop in phases. They have 11 plots of land for sale for other black people and organizations that want to be part of freedom. And they need a lot of money to make freedom a reality. They're fundraising and partnering with black organizations to get there. Now, historically, black communities have been destroyed by racist policies, redlining, racial covenants, highways built to isolate and cut them off from resources. And the idea of building a safe haven for economic empowerment, it's not new. From Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, destroyed by a white mob in the Tulsa massacre, to Seoul City in North Carolina, a city built for African Americans with support from the Nixon administration that ultimately failed. And now freedom. Its founders want to learn from past successes and failures. To figure out how to be profitable as farmers and ranchers, they're consulting with a well-known black farmer in Georgia. My name is Wayne Swanson. I am the owner-operator of Swanson Family Farm. We meet at a rest stop an hour from the land. Swanson comes from a long line of land-owning black farmers. With the Freedom Georgia initiative? I'm the ag guy. So what I'm doing is teaching them how to regenerate soil. The goal, to turn a profit within five years while bringing jobs and investment to a mixed-race county that needs both. We're just being honest. It's America. Um, not everyone is, is interested in going into a black county and, and providing jobs and services. It's just they're going to say the numbers aren't there when we're the biggest consumers of everything. He says if it works, it could be a blueprint for other rural counties with large black communities from Mississippi up to the Carolinas that have suffered from disinvestment. If we now have the gravitas, if we now have the expertise, if we have the training, we can do it ourselves. And that does not mean we want to be isolationists. That doesn't mean that we don't partner well with other people. It just means it, it's time. It, that's where we saw success. We saw success in starting and operating our own. That is the goal of the families he's consulting. And yes, there were a few people in the county who raised concerns at city folks coming into rural Georgia with a project to build a black city. Dennis Stroud is the county manager. For a small town, that became a little hiccup because it sounded like separatism, and that's what we didn't want. But I think the more people understand about the initiative and what they're trying to achieve, I think that has been squashed a lot. What were some of the concerns at the beginning? Well, I, I think just the name, it sounded like they were, the, the community was only being built for a certain demographic. Mm -hmm. And what we were looking for is to be incorporated into this county so that we, we can all grow. And I think once the group understood that, and then once the county understood that this group is not coming in to be some sort of just behind the walls by themselves, but they want to be members of this county. And I think once everybody understood that, everything went away. Now he says it's excitement. This group has really came to us with, with some real positive ideas.
So Wilkerson County actually is welcoming them here because we believe that they will increase the tax base here. And certainly we want them. We want to grow this county. A larger tax base means more resources. Down the road from Stroud's office is that gas station in the center of town. Beverly Clark is a retired white school teacher. I think it's great. I think it will be wonderful. I really do. I mean, we need a decent grocery store in this county. And if that's what it takes, we'd love to have that that town started. Willie Juhan Sr. is 82, also retired. I think that's real nice. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but this isn't a county free from the racist history that defines the United States. Juhan still remembers when black people like him were relegated to one side of town. And he remembers the lynching of Caleb Hill Jr. when he was 10. Some of his memories are different than historical records, but what isn't in dispute is that a black man was put in the local jail and... Sometime that night, whole day, they, they took him out. They, they took him out of that jail and lynched him. The two white men charged never stood trial. There ain't nobody talking about it much, so you might want to keep it kind of quiet. That was more than 70 years ago. But we're chatting as the three white men who killed Ahmad Arbery stand trial for his murder just three hours away. Johan sees this as a modern-day lynching. It hasn't changed that much from what happened. It's all changed the way they do it. It's like they, they, that guy took that shotgun and shot that black guy. But he had no evidence that he'd done anything wrong, no evidence that was stole. So he had to shoot him just because he was black. And that's why Ashley Scott's family and the 18 others purchased this land. She takes me on a tour of the rest of the property and talks more about her dreams for freedom. A bed and breakfast, pecan and blueberry farms, horse trails. I feel like a pioneer. <laughs> I very much feel like I'm um, helping to create and establish a place that will honor our ancestors and their tenacity to build a community for themselves when there were not places where they felt welcome and safe. And so when you feel that way, instead of bowing down and bowing out, I feel like we have to build something for ourselves and empower ourselves to have the spaces that we deserve. She says nobody else is going to build it. Waste environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. We're driving over an overpass smack in the middle of Carson, California. You look down and you can see the Dominguez Channel. It cuts the city of Carson in half and it's filled with stormwater runoff. Crack open the car window, especially at night, and you can smell it rotten eggs, sulfur, like somebody got up in the sky and just let out a big loud poop and it's just stuck in the air. <laughs> Lakeisha Coleman lives about a mile and a half south of that channel. In September, when the smell started, she got a prescription for migraine headache medication. Some of her neighbors were complaining of dizziness, double vision, nausea. Coleman became so uncomfortable she went to the emergency room. And I told my doctor what was going on, and he said, oh my God, stop taking the medicine, get out of your neighborhood. LA County has declared a state of emergency. They've paid for thousands of hotel rooms. 
so residents like Coleman can escape that toxic odor hovering over Carson. But the county will stop paying for those rooms this week. They say it's now safe for residents to come home. And Coleman is back in Carson. She still smells the gas and gets daily headaches. And meanwhile, her elderly parents just flew in to spend Thanksgiving with her. KCRW's Kaylee Wells picks up the story from here. Even when Coleman was in one of the subsidized hotels, she was just trading in a literal headache for a metaphorical one. She got placed in Long Beach. Her adult children who live with her got placed at LAX. Then she left for a few days. She spent some time at her kid's hotel room, which was closer to her job. And they involuntarily checked me out. I had no idea. Now my things are still missing. I'm still fighting with the hotel, trying to figure out where my things are. It's just a mess. It's a mess. She tried to get a new hotel room for her and her small dog, but the next one available had a $250 pet fee the county would not pay. So while her adult children are sleeping out by LAX, after a month of moving around, Coleman went home. Even if you do score a room where the pet can stay for free, keeping it is tougher than it sounds. Luz Padua has been staying in Torrance. She's on room number three. Padua is legally blind, so every time she gets relocated, she has to relearn the layout of the room she's living in. Oh, it's no, gone down. I'm so sorry. There's two big There's bumps. There's two, yeah. No, this one's gone down. It was, it was, I've been icing it all morning. It was uh, more significant than that. <laughs> the golf ball-sized bumps on her leg came from running into a dresser that morning. Even once she found a room that worked for her family, there was no guarantee she would keep it. The county's contracts with the hotel each only run for one week, Friday to Friday. So you don't know how long you'll get your room. You might get a call at 10 a.m. on a Friday asking you to check out by noon. We were guessing, like, are we staying? Are we going? What's happening? We'd get a call, oh, you've been extended. Then I'd get a call, oh, you're going to relocate. Then I'd get a call, no, you're going to stay. It was just very, it's been very stressful. The city of Carson initially helped residents figure out where to stay. But then after several weeks, the city stopped helping, leaving them to cope with the county's chaotic system. Carson's mayor, Lula Davis-Holmes, says the city did all it could. Well, it's the county's problem, and they want to be the one to solve it. You know, and it's just like me going to your house and saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to handle everything that's wrong in your house. This is their problem, and they've asked us to step back. Now, many residents who are home already say it doesn't smell as bad as it used to. And that's mostly because the county is spraying 13,000 gallons of odor neutralizer on the channel every day. But Coleman says when the wind dies down at night, it comes back. When I'm here all day, all night, my nose is bleeding. Sometimes I'm awakened out of my sleep because of the smell, coughing and choking. There's several agencies that have been investigating for weeks why the channel smells. The leading wisdom right now is hydrogen sulfide. That's a toxic gas that smells like rotten eggs. It can come from oil wells or bacteria in stagnant water. Some residents blame a 4.3 earthquake centered in Carson that shook their homes and the oil refineries there in mid-September. But... We have found no evidence that the earthquake is a cause of this, this ongoing incident. Terrence Mann with the Air Quality Management District says all evidence so far points to the roughly 29 million gallons of dead water with decaying plant matter in the channel, which hasn't been flushed out thanks to our drought. And the prevailing theory among the entire group of agencies is that this is essentially a naturally occurring incident. And so it is a die-off uh, in the channel. 
they keep saying it's a natural occurrence, but this has never happened. They said it's because of the drought. We've had plenty of droughts before. Never smelt this. Never. The county's Department of Public Works has also blamed the drought for the smell. No one there granted us an interview for this story. When asked at a recent public meeting to explain the cause of the smell, they said the investigation is ongoing and then explained why there's not enough water to flush out the channel. We need essentially like a wave action, like almost like a, a huge shadow wave action. So we also director Mark Pastrella says the ocean tide at the end of the channel pushes the water back in and the channel can't be dredged. Each of those solutions came up that we came up with um, had problems with one feasibility, the actual feasibility to put the dredge in there to um, some of the risks that were associated with that discharge weren't acceptable. Pastrella says instead they're using industrial sewage and sanitation methods to treat the water. He says it should fix the problem for good. It's just going to take a while. Coleman is not satisfied with that answer. She wonders if the city's demographics, it's 24% Black and 37% Latino, make the situation less urgent for county officials. I honestly feel that if this was more of a less minority community, that something would have happened already. It just makes no sense that we have to wait so long to get answers and we still don't have any answers, none whatsoever. You know, what are they gonna do to prevent this from happening again? At the worst point, the amount of hydrogen sulfide in the air was about 200 times what's federally allowed. Today, it's consistently under that standard almost everywhere, almost all the time. That's why the county will stop paying for hotel rooms by Friday, even though complaints of smelly air and daily headaches from residents continue. Padua and her family were planning to travel for the Thanksgiving holiday, but instead they'll be staying in town to pack up their lives and head home. As for Coleman... I have family coming in from Thanksgiving. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. She's crossing her fingers that her parents don't get sick while they visit her in Carson. For KCRW, I'm Kaylee Wells. Excuse my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. At the end of this month, France gives a special honor to Josephine Baker. The remains of the singer will be moved to the Paris Pantheon. That's the French mausoleum of heroes. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports on why the American singer has found a place alongside Victor Hugo and Marie Curie. In J'ai deux amours, Josephine Baker's most iconic song, she sings of having two loves, my country and Paris. Born into a poor family in St. Louis, Missouri, Baker arrived in the French capital in 1925 to be part of an all-black dance show. She was just 19 years old. Writer Laurent Kupferman's documentary, Josephine Baker, A French Destiny, airs next week. He says Baker's love affair with France began when she got off the train in Paris. And someone gave the hand to, to help her. And that person was a white person. And she felt so good that she was seen not as a color, but as a human person. Baker performed in an all-black show called La Revue Negre, often dancing half-nude in her iconic banana belt. It was heavily stereotypical and in line with European conceptions at the time of non-whites as erotic and funny. But Baker managed to have her own agency, says historian Pap Indai. 
She, in fact, mocked these uh, stereotypes. She was not taking things at face value, and she made sure that everyone understood she was not exactly what people expected her to be. And this was quite an accomplishment for a very young woman who didn't have much knowledge of the society she landed in. Baker's French was soon fluent and she began to sing. The little girl who had cleaned houses at the age of nine in St. Louis became a star in Paris and part of the city's intellectual and artistic elite of the 1930s. In 1936, Baker took her show to the U.S., but her success didn't translate. And after living in France, she could no longer bear Jim Crow laws and the systemic racism of her own country. In 1937, Baker became a French citizen. She bought a chateau in the bucolic Dordogne region of France. We are in the house of Josephine. <laughs> Today, that chateau is owned by 45-year-old Angelique de Saint-Exupéry, who grew up hearing stories of Baker and could see her chateau from her own bedroom window as a young girl. Saint-Exupéry has spent the last 20 years refurbishing the Château de Miland to pay homage to Josephine Baker. Today, it's a national historical monument visited by more than 100,000 people a year. It's, uh, yes, <laughs> it's my present for Josephine. Josephine adopted 12 children. She fought against uh, racism during all her, her life. She fought during the Second War. She is an extraordinary woman. Scouring auctions, Saint-Exupéry has collected photos, furniture, playbills, and dresses from Baker's life. Here, it's uh, she wore in the Carnegie Hall in New York. In 1940, after the German invasion, Baker permanently left Paris for Les Milandes, refusing to perform for the Nazis. Saint-Exupéry explains how Baker hid resistance fighters, Jewish refugees, and guns in her chateau. She sang for French troops and undertook espionage missions, risking her life for her adopted country. Baker was awarded medals for her valor, and in 1961 she was decorated with the Legion of Honor medal. In 1963, she addressed Martin Luther King's March on Washington, dressed in her French Resistance uniform with medals across her breast. Georges Pasquet was just 20 years old when he became Josephine Baker's head butler at the Chateau in the 1960s. Today, at 81, he thinks back fondly on those times. He even has a picture of Baker on his flip phone. C'était très luxueux et sortant de mon... It was such a luxurious and fabulous place, and coming from my little village, I was stunned by it all, he says. She had such energy and never slept. She'd call me down from my room at 4 a.m. and say, George, let's go over the plans for the day. I'd come in my robe. I didn't have time to dress. Pasquet also helped care for the 12 children Baker adopted from all over the world her rainbow tribe. I meet Baker's seventh child, Brian Bouillon Baker, inside the Pantheon, where his mother will soon be laid to rest. He says she adopted him from Algeria during the country's war of independence with France and changed his life. She wanted to show that coming from different parts of the world with different religions and different countries and culture, 
that it was possible to be brothers, to have a kind of universal brotherhood. It was like a demonstration to the world. Baker collapsed after her last concert in Paris at the age of 68 and died several days later. Thousands of Parisians lined the streets for her funeral in 1975. Because of her mounting debts, she had been unable to keep her chateau. Historian Pap Indai says Baker may have made mistakes in her personal life, but when it came to important issues, she always made the right choices. Human rights, the Second World War, the fight against segregation, racism, fascism, she was right on target. And for that, Josephine Baker will become the first artist, first woman of color, and first American to be honored in France's Pantheon. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The gay rights movement is changing everything. We go next to Germany, which is debating gender-neutral language. The nature of German makes it a bigger change than elsewhere, though a 2018 law officially recognizes more than two sexes. Esme Nicholson has more from the city of Hanover. Like many languages, gender in German isn't denoted by personal pronouns alone. German nouns are gendered, but in the plural, the masculine is used by default. And that's a contentious issue. In 2018, a new federal law stipulated that all official documents, from birth certificates to passports, must include three options, male, female and diverse. Since then, gender-neutral language has become more commonplace. Lufthansa recently ditched the phrase ladies and gentlemen. German scholars are preparing a gender-neutral edition of the Bible. And in some cities, it's an official directive. Ladies and gentlemen, next stop Hanover. This is Hanover, whose residents have a reputation for speaking the most standard variant of German. Hanoverians have been encouraged by City Hall to use gender-sensitive language for almost two decades, avoiding the generic masculine whenever possible. It was the first major city to use the so-called gender star, an asterisk placed within a noun to refer to men and women and non-binary people alike. Annika Schach was the city's communications director at the time. Using gender-neutral language or the gender star has less to do with wanting to change the world and more to do with accepting reality. Society is not only made up of men, but women, intersex and non-binary people too. And the language we use must reflect this. But that message has not reached everyone. Hendrik, a lawyer who wouldn't give his last name for fear of getting in trouble with his employer, says he can't stand the gender star. Once you start addressing the third gender, it's not long until you're required to address a fourth or a fifth. And for me as a lawyer, this gets too complex linguistically. Legal texts are not there to serve such grievances. There are more important issues in this world. He's not the only one who takes issue. When Germany's foremost dictionary, Duden, started removing the generic masculine from entries in its online edition, a small but vocal group launched a petition to save the German language from Duden. Oliver Baer, one of the signatories, says language does nothing to fix societal inequities. Gender mainstreaming appears to me like a diversion. 
really. Women are being called persons with a menstruation background. Of course, one can do this sort of thing, but that's more cabaret than anything else. Gabriela Diewalder, linguistics professor at the University of Hanover, disagrees. The generic masculine is not a grammatical must. Claims to the contrary are deliberate attempts to continue marginalizing women and other genders. Diewald says that while gender-neutral language upsets the tabloid press, other media organizations have encouraged its acceptance. Klaus Kleber anchors Germany's biggest nightly television news show, Heute Journal. He was one of the first news hosts to adopt gender-neutral language. Und jetzt das Heute Journal mit Gundula Gause und Klaus Kleber. You get reluctant and rare praise for it, but you get a lot and vehement opposition to it. He even articulates the gender star from time to time, which he renders using a suitably linguistic glottal stop. But he doesn't judge those who don't use gender-neutral language, nor does he use it religiously. I speak to four to five million people every evening, and they want to be respected. Those who are on one side of this issue and those who are on the other side of this issue. And I want to signal to both sides, I'm not excluding anybody. Back in Hanover, Kerstin Kolminga, who works in the arts, says it's painful to see how ugly the debate has become. I'm all for inclusive language, but I encounter a lot of aggression when I use it. Either that, or I'm dismissed as being too niche. But Kraminga says she won't be deterred from addressing more than just cisgender men, especially, she says, if most of them are not listening anyway. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Hanover. No, my first name ain't baby, it's Janet. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. Jackson. She was one of the most popular pop musicians from the late 80s to early 2000s. At that time, she sold more than 100 million records worldwide. But Jackson's superstar status was undone by a mere nine sixteenths of a second of live TV. I'm talking, of course, about that wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl. 89 million viewers watched. Janet Jackson's R-rated Super Bowl stuff. The exposure of Janet Jackson's breast. Janet Jackson. Janet Jackson. A new documentary called Malfunction, The Dressing Down of Janet Jackson, examines that infamous Super Bowl halftime performance and how that moment damaged Jackson's career for years after. Presented by the New York Times, the film is part of the same series that detailed Britney Spears' life under her conservatorship. And joining us to talk about Malfunction, we have two guests now. Jody Gomes is director of the documentary. Also, she was the executive producer of the 2009 reality show Jackson's A Family Dynasty. Hi, Jody. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. And also joining us from the New York Times is Rachel Abrams. She's a reporter and senior producer on the documentary. Hi, Rachel. Hey there, thanks for having us. Great to have you both. Jody, let's begin with you. Just describe Janet Jackson pre-Nipplegate. Like, where was she in 
the music industry before the performance? Well, before the 2004 Super Bowl, she was an icon. She had laid the foundation for women taking ownership of and control of their image. She, in fact, put out a groundbreaking album called Control that was literally about that very fact. And uh, she paved the way for a lot of the artists that we see today. Her music videos were iconic. Her records were top of the charts. She was winning awards everywhere you went. And I just think she was undeniably a star. And she was a star who crossed all sorts of barriers, color lines, sex, age, everything. She was one of those rare commodities who could be appealing to everybody. Absolutely. She's an international star. And it's very rare that you find somebody that crosses so many lanes. And she was able to redefine what a black pop star looked like and really fundamentally what a pop star looked like. And she did it well. And she did it um, early on, right? I mean, she was a star when she was a, a little kid. Yeah, I mean, we a lot of us have grown up with Janet. We've had the luxury of watching her grow up as a little girl on television from doing good times and early shows with her brothers, the Jackson Five all the way up leading to the Super Bowl. And so she was no stranger to the entertainment industry. And again, she just did it well. And and that's why she became the icon that we know and love. And why she was chosen to be part of the halftime show, right? That's right. (laughs) Okay, so she wasn't the only one. Uh, Here's a clip from the movie. We're going to hear former MTV VJ Lala. And then we'll hear from an executive from the NFL. And then finally, Janet herself. So be sure to catch the oh, AOL yeah. Top Speed Super Bowl Halftime Show produced by MTV. You got Jen Jackson, Kid Rock, P. Diddy, and Nelly is going to be there. So make sure you tune in for that. I think of all the issues we had potentially concerning the talent for that halftime show, Janet Jackson was probably the least concerned that we had. They're a fun group of guys, and it's nice to be the only girl. <laughs> Okay, so Rachel, take us back to that moment. MTV was in charge of the show, and it was a bit of a forced marriage, right, between the NFL and MTV, the NFL known for family presentations, not wanting to be too scandalous. MTV at the time liked to be scandalous. Exactly. Basically, the NFL needed to put together a totally family-friendly show. They were nervous about partnering with MTV, but they had gotten a personal guarantee from Les Moonves, who was running CBS at the time, which was MTV's sister company. And there's a lot of pressure from the parent company, Viacom, on their two uh, subsidiaries to show that there was synergy and they could work well together. So Moonves tells the head of the NFL, Paul Tagliabue, that this show will go on without a hitch. And then when it didn't, he was doubly embarrassed um, because he had given that that personal guarantee himself. At the time, though, as I said, it was just a fraction of a second. Did people realize immediately what had happened? You know, it's funny because people who were actually in Houston watching live um, at the Super Bowl itself, they didn't even notice. Um, many of them, meaning people that worked at MTV or Viacom executives uh, who were actually there, told me that they had no idea what had happened. And even some of the people who were working on the show didn't see it. Uh, but the folks at home, especially because TiVo was relatively new, um, there were a lot of people at home that were able to catch it. And the executives and MTV were celebrating um, that the show had seemingly gone off well. When everybody starts getting phone calls saying, did you see that? Did you see that? And then the phones start ringing off the hook with calls from reporters seeking comment. And Justin Timberlake was the surprise guest, right? Because we heard in that prior clip, he wasn't mentioned. So that was going to be the big reveal, so to speak. 
So yes, exactly. So after all of this goes down, CBS starts getting very angry and suspicious that MTV had cooked this up the whole time. And they looked at a press release that MTV had released that promised, I believe they phrased it as shocking moments uh, ahead of the Super Bowl. And so folks at CBS were thinking, oh man, you know, this was a PR stunt gone wrong. But MTV maintained that, no, the surprise, the shocking moment was that they were going to have Justin Timberlake appear because he had not been previously announced. Jody, what actually happened? Because I, I don't think even now, 20 years later, we know what happened, like how how this happened. Well, what our reporting shows is that there was a secret meeting that took place between Janet, Justin, and Janet's wardrobe stylist just moments before the show. And what we do know is at the rehearsal two days prior to the Super Bowl, it was scripted that there was going to be a wardrobe reveal during Justin's song, Rock Your Body. It had been determined by all the powers that be at the NFL, at MTV, at CBS, that they would not do the wardrobe reveal, which was a skirt tearaway. It was supposed to be done, and that was the end of the story of the wardrobe and costume reveal. By the time we got to the Super Bowl, of course, there was a reveal. And even according to Janet herself, the reveal just went wrong. And there were a lot of surprises that, and a lot of fallout that came from there. Right. Um, there was supposed to be a reveal. He pulls away her blouse, reveals the nipple, which has got a piece of jewelry on it. Um, so it looks like because it does have a piece of jewelry on it that it was intentional to reveal it. But from all your reporting, it was unintentional? Well, from Janet herself, if you look at her interviews, and we, we wanted to make sure the film let Janet and Justin speak for themselves through archives. If you look at her own interviews, she admitted that they had made a costume reveal plan, but it went too far and that the revealing of the nipple was not an intended consequence. What We'll never know what took place in that room 17 years ago between the artist and the wardrobe stylist, but what we do know is that we were supposed to see a red bra lace underneath Janet's costume and that was supposed to be revealed. How it went too far, I don't know that we'll ever know the truth of that. Right. Okay, so immediately after that, Rachel, Janet flees the scene and... Justin gets uh, interviewed and uh, he basically is distancing himself from it. And here's a clip of him in an interview with Entertainment Tonight. I don't feel like I need publicity like this. And I wouldn't want to be involved with a stunt, especially something of this magnitude. Justin comes out of this, I mean, not smelling like Rose, but not looking like a guilty party. Right. And the film kind of tackles the question of why. You know, was it because he was a white man and he was also uh, not yet at the apex of his career, whereas Janet Jackson was a, a pop star pushing 40 in an industry that is not particularly kind to women who age and particularly not black women? Did he come off looking better because he apologized uh, more effusively or and quickly than she did? These are the questions that we tackle in the film um, because it's undeniable that she lost opportunities whereas he kept lucrative deals and he was even invited back to the Super Bowl in 2018 to perform at the halftime show. She was only 37. I know that's maybe, you know, in pop star years, more like 137. But still, she was only 37. She was only 37. But yeah, I'm speaking in pop star years. So Jody, what happened to Janet's career after that immediately and long term? Well, in the immediate aftermath, of course, we saw things happen like Janet lost her record label deal. She lost movie deals that were lucrative deals that were sitting on the table. Corporate sponsors like even Disney World had a 
a statue of Mickey Mouse where they had the Rhythm Nation uniform on it. They even stripped Mickey Mouse of the Rhythm Nation uniform to distance themselves from Janet. Meanwhile, Justin keeps ascending. He has deals with McDonald's that went further. And like Rachel said, he was even invited back to the Super Bowl. And so what we wanted to really measure was the ascension and descension of both of these careers and how corporate America dealt with both of these people. There were two people on stage that night and one person clearly her career was diminished while another one ascended. And it, it's undeniable that that happened. And it's something that we wanted to speak truth to power in the mm -hmm. film. It's interesting that Justin Timberlake is a feature in both of these women's lives, Janet Jackson's and Britney Spears, the other New York Times uh, documentary on this similar subject. Um, he's the, I guess, the common element in both. Is there something to be said about that? Justin being a popular, um, coming from the boy band world, I think he's just gotten a lot of boys will be boys um, narrative with all the things that he's done over the years. And unfortunately, Brittany and Janet were both on the receiving end of that sort of cultural attitude of boys will be boys. And him coming from the boy band, he was the lucky one that sort of skated away from any kind of controversy while these two women took the hit for whatever he was involved in. And so, you know, I just think it's a matter of who he is and what our, our society says about young white males and what they can get away with. It's not necessarily a black or a white thing. I think it was a male female thing. And like Rachel said, I think you have to look at the intersectionality of ageism, sexism, and racism. They all happen to collide on February 1st, 2004 for this particular film. Mm, interesting. Rachel, do you see any parallels between Brittany, what she went through, and what Janet Jackson went through? In the I mean, I see a few, but one of them is just the absolute loss of control over one's own narrative and image and the way that the media really played a role in both the media was, and, and mainly, you know, I'm talking about a lot of stuff on television, late night comics, late night TV hosts, morning show hosts like Matt Lauer and so on. I mean, everybody was ruthless to her and they were ruthless to Britney Spears. Um, you know, in the Britney Spears film, there's a really good clip of Britney Spears being asked by somebody on camera, how do you feel about, they named some politician, some politician's wife, I'm blanking on the name. How, how do you feel about that, that she said that she would shoot you if she could for the for the example you're setting for young women? And it's, it's really just a shocking moment and the way that Janet Jackson became a punchline and a punching bag uh, really reminds me very much of Britney Spears um, and raises the question yet again of sort of why was everybody okay with this? Right. And then you mentioned Matt Lauer and Les Moonves, both men caught up in the Me Too scandals recently, both men accused of pretty serious sexual assault and also involved in censuring these these young women, these pop stars. Uh, I mean, it's it's really it is interesting that like Janet Jackson has her career has uh, has continued and obviously his is Les Moonves's has not, and Matt Lauer's uh, has not. Although, uh, yeah, Matt Lauer, besides doing some uncomfortable interviews about Britney Spears, I, I don't know what role he really played in her career. Yeah. And they weren't the only ones. Women, too, right? I mean, Katie Couric is, uh, in your film, highly critical. Yeah. I mean, everybody. It was This incident at the Super Bowl, these, this ninth sixteenth of a second on TV, provided so many hours of material for newscasters, for comedians, for television hosts. It's really remarkable. So, Jody, uh, recently the Internet has fought back and tried to make amends, I suppose, and made Janet's Control album number one again. 
uh, 35 years after it was released. There's actually been a bit of a turnaround in the culture to embrace her, given everything she's gone through. Well, I think that's the point. There's been a turnaround in the culture. And I also think there's been a turnaround in technology where we have platforms now, we meaning fans and, and, and admirers of Janet's career, have more of a vocal place where they can actually support her. 17 years ago, we didn't have the internet. And so there wasn't a place for fans to come back and push back and say, hey, this is lopsided. Hey, this is unfair. Look how you're treating her. Maybe this is much ado about nothing. Whereas now they were able to voice how they feel about Janet, support how they feel about Janet, but also bring some levity to the situation in that it really was nine sixteenth of a second. And we basically banished her career for 12 to 17 years. I think the turnaround came when Justin was actually announced for the Super Bowl. That same day, we saw a hashtag. Um, I think it was Janet Jackson Appreciation Day on the Super Bowl. And then we also started seeing justice for Janet. So I think her fans by and large played a big role in her turnaround, but also the tenacity that she has as an icon. I think she was down, but not out. And I think that speaks volumes about the level of career and the magnitude of her star power. Well, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Fascinating documentary. Thank you. Thank you for watching. Thank you so much for having us. White supremacy is the sickness. Since the FDA granted emergency authorization of the Pfizer COVID vaccine for children ages 5 to 11, more than 2 million children in the U.S. have been vaccinated. Public health officials are highlighting the importance of providing vaccine access to low-income and minority communities that have been hit hardest by COVID. Stephanie Sai visited one of those communities in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a busy Saturday morning at the Mountain Park Health Center in the Maryvale neighborhood of Phoenix. A few dozen parents have flocked to this vaccine clinic to get jabs for their children. Some kids made it look easy. Others were understandably nervous, especially the youngest ones, which included five-year-old Gustavo Carrasco. He's a cancer survivor who's currently in remission. His mom, Janet Esparza, wanted to be there on day one to get him vaccinated. The pandemic upended her life. She quit her job, worried about bringing the virus home. He never left. He was in the house unless it was absolutely necessary to leave. Ten-year-old Rosalinda Ibarra, who has asthma, came with her two younger brothers and mom, Janet Villa. My grandpa, he's the one who got um, COVID. Her grandpa wasn't vaccinated and died earlier this year. That's why I came in and brought them so they could get the, the vaccine. I got it because what happened to my dad? At first, I did not want to get it because I was scared and everything. So many families have lost loved ones in this low to moderate income, largely Latino neighborhood. This community health center is on the front lines. Janie Pearl Starks is Director of Equity, Diversity and Engagement at Mountain Park Health Center. It's a very vibrant community and it's also a lot of a community that has a lot of needs. And so there aren't the systems of uh, a lot of other health care facilities. There's a lot of poverty in Maryvale. Um, there's a lot of people working several jobs. There's a lot of multi-generational families. At one point in the summer of 2020, Arizona had the highest rate of COVID cases in the nation, and Maryvale was particularly hard hit. Now, public health officials worry that the same systemic barriers that led to that may prevent parents from vaccinating their children. I, I go to work like 3 in the morning, 
and I get off about like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. With a truck driver's schedule and caring for multiple grandchildren, the vaccine simply wasn't top of mind for Ray Dixon. I've been talking to some people about the vaccine. You know, a lot of them say, Ray, yeah, go ahead and get it. It's, it's all right to get it. And then some of them say, well, man, you don't need it. You ain't sick. You don't need it. I'm like, so they got me like confused. I, I don't know. What about the kiddos? Did you know that they just approved the vaccine for children ages 5 to 11? No, I didn't even know that. You didn't know that? Okay. This is the challenge in neighborhoods like Maryvale. People may not have time to go out of their way to get the vaccine. And health officials say patients are getting mixed messages about it, and rumors are spreading faster than facts. It's why Mountain Park Health Center is sending outreach workers to knock on doors. They're connecting people with providers that can answer their questions and even help make appointments for them to get the vaccine. They've met mixed success. We're going to be knocking on doors. We're going to be talking to people and trying to further that trust because just as just as the folks who are already vaccinated want their kids to get vaccinated, we also know there's a lot of adults who aren't vaccinated yet who don't want their kids vaccinated. Benino Martinez was just getting back from his job when outreach workers approached him in his driveway. He said he was worried about the virus and its spread, but still hadn't been vaccinated. I have friends who've gotten sick after getting the vaccine. The language barrier with Maryvale's large Latino population is another barrier, according to Pearl Starks. We have seen that where in English a lot of the misinformation or disinformation um, gets fact-checked and gets blocked out on social media. That doesn't happen in Spanish. Just more than a third of Latinos in Arizona have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, compared to more than half of white Arizonans, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. As dusk approached, we met Artemisa Castro with one of her five children. Joan is five, and she plans to have him vaccinated as soon as possible. But her husband is adamantly refusing the vaccine. Some people say that they are putting a chip in your arm. I don't know, to be honest. There are so many rumors, and my husband believes all of them, and not that the vaccine is actually working. The microchip conspiracy theory is just one bit of misinformation Dr. Mandy Oleden battles. Microchips are not in the vaccines. This is Joe Anthony. All right. Hey, big guy. High five. The hard thing has been, right. I think for me and a lot of our providers or physicians here has been being able to battle the false news or false information that's being, um, you know, heard out there. I want to meet them in the middle, but also let them know as your pediatrician, this is why my recommendation is what it is. Otherwise, it does sometimes come down to a lot of frustration. Frustrating because the pediatrician has seen how COVID has ravaged this community. Aside from the number of cases, we've been seeing also uh, parents get affected from even like a work standpoint, schools being shut down, schools going online. I've seen it hit across multiple levels. One of the areas I think that I've seen it really hard that has struck me is the adolescents, um, our teenagers and their mental health. Public health experts say vaccinating children is also important for protecting the most vulnerable as the Delta variant continues to threaten the elderly and people with underlying medical conditions, even those that have been inoculated. Five-year-old cancer survivor Gustavo Carrasco can relax now that the jab is over. His mother has that vaccine card in hand. 
For her and countless other parents, the child COVID vaccine was long anticipated and offers a path towards some much needed normalcy. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai in Phoenix. Jack, El Paso, Texas, good morning. Oh, good morning, sir. It's, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all Same Americans. And uh, just want to say one thing, you know, uh, I I agree with the uh, <coughs> previous callers, but uh, just one little thing, something that has really been forgotten in this country is the, the fact that uh, uh, last year in Detroit, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, there were over 50,000 murders in the black community. And I didn't see Reverend Al Sharpton out there for one of them. Today, there are 16 kids being buried in black communities, 16 kids. I was just seeing it on the Internet. And not Al Sharpton or anyone who said a word about it. So uh, the black community has got to do something, it seems to me, to get control of the situation. Their children are, are running drugs. And they're looting stores, as we've seen yesterday on television. Uh, sledgehammers knocking out windows and, and, and uh, uh, cases. And, there, and dozens and dozens of kids think it's okay. Jack, what do you... What do you think of, of this case that we're talking about and, and what it means for whether the justice system works in this country? Three different cases in three courtrooms in three states have sparked some similar conversations about justice and injustice in America. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial ended Friday with his acquittal. The white 18-year-old had been charged with homicide after killing two white men and wounding a third in the aftermath of protests over the police shooting of a black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. In Georgia, defense attorneys for three white men charged with murdering a black jogger have rested their case. And in Charlottesville, Virginia. A jury is deliberating a case against white nationalist organizers of the 2017 Unite the Right rally. Paul Butler is a professor of law at Georgetown University and joins us now. Welcome. Hey, Layla. It's great to be here. So let's start in Kenosha. Kyle Rittenhouse had become a hero for some on the right. He's been championed by former President Trump. A Fox film crew was embedded with him during the trial. What message does his acquittal send? The verdict does not mean that the jurors bought the Boy Scout image of Rittenhouse that the defense presented. It only means that they had reasonable doubt that Rittenhouse was guilty. At the same time, I can't imagine that residents of Kenosha are happy about a 17-year-old bringing a semi-assault rifle to patrol their streets. Jurors were looking at a narrow set of laws on questions of gun and self-defense laws. But many observers also saw in the case a white defendant being given a whole lot of leeway for his deadly behavior. Is, is that what you saw? The prosecutors had a tough case. Some of their own witnesses ended up supporting the defense. There were concerns through the trial that the judge tipped the scales of justice in favor of Mr. Rittenhouse and that an African-American who shot three people at a protest rally wouldn't have been allowed to go home that night like Mr. Rittenhouse was. And he might not have had the benefit of a $2 million legal defense fund. So I think there are 
concerns about equal justice under the law, even though all of the principles were white. Now, self-defense is also the defense in the case of the killing of Ahmad Arbery for the three white men who chased him down in their trucks and shot him. Do you see similar dynamics at play in Brunswick, Georgia? I had a hard time listening to the testimony of Travis McMichael, who was the shooter. The way he described three white men chasing Mr. Arbery reminded me of slave catchers. That's where the Georgia citizen arrest law comes from. What the trial of the killers of Mr. Arbery and the Rittenhouse trial have in common is white men armed and taking the law in their own hands. I think for a lot of people, as they watch these cases, they expect the courts to come out with what they see as justice. But can courts be a viable tool to try and fix systemic issues in the United States? Criminal cases are not about social change, but civil trials like the trial in Charlottesville can be more ambitious. The goal is bankrupting white supremacist organizations and deterring people from using violence. One important function, though, that trials have is their storytelling, a way of mediating trauma. There's been a lot of focus on the jury selection in these cases. I understand that Wisconsin and Georgia, only one member of each jury was not white. And in the Virginia case, prospective jurors were asked about their feelings on white nationalism, on the Black Lives Matter movement. What do these jury selections tell us about what's happening behind the scenes in the justice system? When you don't have a lot of information about potential jurors, even though you're not supposed to, race is often viewed by lawyers as a sign of how they might come out in a case. And so if we look at the trial in Georgia, the judge found that there had been intentional discrimination against prospective Black jurors, but he said that there was nothing that he can do about it. The Supreme Court has said that in a case that implicates race, no one has a right to have a juror of any particular race. But it's important that juries be diverse, the court says, because that provides community confidence. And if the defendants are found not guilty in a case that looks to a lot of folks like a modern day lynching of a Black man, the composition of the jury may be blamed. A jury of your peers. I mean, these questions seem to try to weed out people who might have ideas of anti-racism or grew up with the lived Black experience. In the era of Black Lives Matter, almost everybody has thought about the criminal legal system and asked whether it treats everybody fairly. You wouldn't want jurors who hadn't engaged in these questions because it would mean that they're not quite with it. And sometimes in cases involving race, it's almost as though the, the white perspective is seen as neutral. But if you have concerns about the criminal legal system, even if those concerns are evidence-based, sometimes that's used to suggest bias, and that disproportionately eliminates people of color from jury pools. Paul Butler is a professor of law at Georgetown University. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure. Do you mind if we stay here a while or must you go home? 
There are no musts in my life. I'm free white and 21. You're lucky. For more on the potential implications of the verdict in the Rittenhouse trial, I spoke with Isha Rahman, a former public defender and now the vice president of advocacy and partnerships at the Vera Institute of Justice, a nonprofit advocacy organization that focuses on criminal justice reform. Isha, is there data out there that says if Kyle Rittenhouse was black that the sentence would have been different? There's data that shows us that at each and every turn, if Kyle Rittenhouse was an 18-year-old Black man, the system would have treated him differently. So remember that there are 15 million criminal cases filed in this country each year. So already uh, the fact that in Kyle Rittenhouse's case, he was free uh, to come back to court, um, he was released on bail, that is unusual. The vast majority of people who can't afford their bail are black and brown in this country. So already that's something that set Powell Rittenhouse apart from the vast majority of other people facing the criminal legal system in this country. Second, he went to trial. Less than 5% of cases go to trial. Most cases in this country end in a plea bargain or a dismissal. So the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse had a trial and an incredibly public one at that is a rarity as well. And the vast majority, again, of people who are facing the criminal legal process are black and brown and do not have the benefit of telling their story of appearing as a full human, as a, a kid who sobs in the courtroom. How specific is this to the law in Wisconsin versus other states? So as a matter of specifics and the law, Kyle Rittenhouse's case was a difficult one for the jury because the law of self-defense in Wisconsin basically says it's an open carry state. So you are legally allowed to have a gun in the way that Kyle Rittenhouse did, even though he was underage at the time. And the way that the self-defense law is written, which is basically if you feel reasonably threatened for your safety or fear of your life, that you can act, uh, you know, in the way that Kyle Rittenhouse did. So it's a hard case legally. And if I were looking at it sort of from a very narrow public defender lawyer lens, I would say, I understand why the jury grappled for three days. And maybe, maybe I understand why they came back with the verdict that they did. But if I am thinking about this case from a structural perspective about the specter of race and white nationalism and racism that is permeating this case from start to finish, that's where I'm really troubled by the outcome, because as we talked about, if Carl Rittenhouse was a young black man, you can be sure that the verdict yesterday would have been different. It would have been guilty. And in fact, you can be sure that Carl Rittenhouse, if he was a young black man, probably wouldn't have made it out of Kenosha alive on August 25th, 2020, if he was brandishing a gun and had shot and killed two people and seriously maimed another. Do you think there's the possibility here that it empowers other folks to say, you know what, this kind of gives me a permission, a license to go looking for whoever I feel threatened by? It most certainly does. You can be sure that some of the country yesterday celebrated and said, well, this actually shows us that we as white people are justified in our fear, frankly, of uh, Black power, of um, protest in, in support of Black lives. Um, there's absolutely a larger message that yesterday's acquittal sends. And you have to believe that despite the specific legal, you know, uh, questions in this case, that the jury knew that this 
would send a message to this country, and yet they still came back with an acquittal. Ishna Rahman from the Vera Institute, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be on here. I'm sorry, so sorry. Now at five, charges dropped against a former Ladue police officer who faced up to seven years in prison for shooting a suspect. Good evening, I'm Corey Stark. And I'm Paige Halsey and for Samantha Jones. It was back in 2019 that that officer said she mixed up her gun with her taser when she shot the suspect in the back. New at five, our Russell Kinsall taking a closer look at the unique process involved in resolving this case. He's live in Clayton. Well, for possibly the first time in the country, St. Louis County Prosecutor Attorney Wesley Bell used a mediation process called restorative justice to resolve an officer-involved shooting case. It allows the victim to talk directly to the suspect, ask questions, get answers. And I'm told their conversation was very emotional. In this surveillance video, you can hear the gunshot. In 2019, former Ladue police officer Julia Cruz had gone to a schnook store after a call about a shoplifting. Cruz encountered Ashley Hall in the parking lot and shot her in the back. News 4 spoke with Hall during her recovery after she filed a lawsuit against the city. Thank God I've been resuscitated and I'm living. Cruz's mugshot shows she was clearly upset about what happened. She was charged with second-degree assault and admitted she accidentally used her service firearm when she thought she'd grabbed her taser. Early on, um, the victim in this case, Ashley, um, was public about forgiving uh, Julia. St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Wesley Bell had never used the restorative justice process in a case, but thought there might be a possibility with this case because of the women involved. She talked about how Julia, um, when she was shot, came to her crying and apologizing immediately. In this case, the suspect was remorseful, the victim forgiving. So Bell tried this different approach to resolve the case in a way that the victim wanted using restorative justice. It's about healing, it's about accountability, it's about justice. Here is a photo of the restorative justice session that was done by Zoom. It was facilitated by Seema Gadwani with the Attorney General's Office of Washington, D.C. When you think about justice, sometimes what justice requires is somebody genuinely showing remorse and taking responsibility for what they've done. That's true accountability. And in many cases, that's what the person who's been hurt really wants and needs. Bell said the session was emotional. And I counted at least five or six I love you's between them. Well, the process allowed for remorse and forgiveness that satisfied the victim. The charge was dropped. Uh, Hall has since moved away from the St. Louis area, but Bell said the two women actually talked about getting together someday so they could hug one another. A remarkable outcome after their two lives converged because of a violent mistake. Live in Clayton, Russell Kinsell is for. Yeah, Russell, quite the outcome there. All right, thank you. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. A former St. Louis police officer has been sentenced to a year in prison for his role in the beating of a fellow undercover officer. Dustin Boone must also serve three years probation and is ordered to pay. $6,900 in restitution. Five on your side's Alex Fee spent the day in the courtroom. He is live downtown to tell us how Boone reacted after the sentencing, Alex. 
Well, Kelly, good evening. Dustin Boone could have been sentenced up to 10 years in prison. Even his own defense attorney was hoping for a sentence of up to 26 months. Now, Boone was found guilty in June of depriving undercover officer Luther Hall of his civil rights during protests in 2017. Two other officers involved in the incident previously received 52 months in prison and probation, respectively. In court today, Luther Hall said because of those sentences, he feels like his life really doesn't matter. Meanwhile, the first thing that Dustin Boone did in court was turn around, locate Luther Hall in the courtroom and say, I am sorry for what happened to you. Boone said vile, racist texts he sent to his family bragging about his actions are an embarrassment to him now. Prosecutors said beating up protesters was entertainment to Boone and that he FaceTimed with his then-girlfriend bragging about what he did. It's wonderful. I mean... <laughs> Even the judge said he did not attack him. Hayes, Coletta, they all had, he wasn't even right there at the scene when it happened. So he, if he had to serve any time, this is perfect. Dustin Boone's family were the only ones who reacted today outside of the courthouse after the sentencing. Luther Hall declined, as did his attorney. Live downtown, Alex Fees, five on your side. White supremacy is a sickness. I'm Jim Burris. Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson is leading the call for an investigation into why two federal judges would hire a law clerk with a documented history of, quote, racist, bigoted conduct. In a letter to the Supreme Court and to the 11th Circuit here in Atlanta, Johnson recounts several troubling but very public instances where the newly hired clerk used racist and bigoted language. For example, when working for the right-wing group Turning Point USA, she's alleged to have sent a text message to co-workers that said, I hate black people, like, expletive, them all. WABE's legal analyst Paige Pate is here with me to discuss the situation. And Paige, can you first just put into perspective how important a clerk is to a federal judge? Well, Jim, law clerks for federal circuit court judges have a lot of responsibility. Uh, they are generally the ones to review the case once it comes into the court. Uh, they often draft opinions for the court. Uh, they research the issues, and they're generally considered to be the conscience of the judge. I mean, they work very closely with the judge in making a determination about a specific case and what that opinion is going to look like once it's published. Is this a hard position to come by? Oh, it's very hard, very competitive. The Chief Justice of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals here in Atlanta is involved. How does that complicate the investigation? Well, it complicates it because judicial clerks uh, and their judges, uh, I mean, that's a tight, close relationship. I think most judges consider their clerks to be like family, and they stay in touch with them, not just while they're working with the court, but well after. And so those discussions, what they say in chambers about any particular case or about just their view on the law, uh, that's normally held in, in strict confidence. I have never seen a situation like this where a judge has hired a clerk who had um, views that, that not only are this disturbing, but were this publicized. Well, by hiring someone with an alleged past like this clerk has, does it put into question any decisions on race or equality that the court might hear? Well, Jim, I think it certainly could, and, and that's what's problematic here. It's not just whether this particular clerk will decide a case one way or the other. Uh, it's not whether this particular clerk's views on race are now what they were apparently in the past. It's the perception 
of having someone employed by the federal government, by the federal court system, who has in the past made statements that would make a certain group of people, a large group of people in this country, very uncomfortable. And so you have the perception, even if it's not the reality, but the perception that cases will not be heard fairly, impartially, and without consideration of race, uh, gender, or, or any other impermissible consideration. These judges, do they have a reputation for you know, embracing this kind of language, this kind of behavior? No, no, they don't at all. I mean, even the most conservative judges. So I, I do think it's extraordinary to have someone who would be in the chambers with the judge, um, not just who may have these feelings, but who has expressed these feelings in the past. It's just inconsistent with the federal court system as we've learned to accept it. Members of Congress have asked for an investigation into the hiring. What might that entail? And do you think that the clerk can possibly keep her position? Now we're talking about two different branches of government and federal judges, and I think it's especially true with federal circuit court judges, uh, they're protective of their turf. And the idea that you know someone in Congress or even an entire committee wants to second guess their determination, uh, they're not going to respond well to that. So I think Judge Pryor, perhaps, I don't think he said anything publicly on this issue, but they're likely to be very protective of the clerk and very protective of their process and want to keep it as secret and as confined to the federal judicial system as they can. Ultimately, I don't think that any congressional hearing is going to affect which judicial clerk a particular judge hires. They're going to be very protective of that process. There's going to be some controversy. She may decide to resign, but I don't see the judge refusing to hire her. WABE legal analyst Paige Pate, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. This is Mark out of Northwood, New Hampshire. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, I'm pretty much in agreement with most of the callers. These three men should have been charged. They will be convicted and sent to prison like they should be. My biggest problem is the promotion of Al Sharpton. He is one of the most racist black people we've ever seen. And to be called the moral voice of the Democratic Party just drives me crazy. This man, we need to do a little bit of history on Al Sharpton, where he came from, what he did, Wappinger Falls, uh, Tawana Brawley, and all of his anti-police, anti-white rhetoric. He is the worst person to be seeing up there. Until I saw Al Sharpton this morning, I, I had nothing to say. I was in agreement with everything. But he muddies the water terribly. A Brunswick jury has found Travis McMichael, who fatally shot Ahmaud Arbery, guilty of malice murder, felony murder, and aggravated assault. Travis's father, Gregory, was found guilty of eight of the nine charges, including felony murder, but not malice murder. William Bryan, who filmed the whole event, was found guilty of three counts of felony murder, among other charges. Now, all three men face life in prison, and a pending federal hate crime trial is set for February. However, right now, we want to go to WABE's Lisa Hagen, who is live with us from Brunswick. Hi, Lisa. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Hi, Jim. Good to have you along. Thank you for taking time out. I know it's been a busy afternoon for you. Uh, describe what you have seen outside of the Glen County Courthouse today. 
definitely just elation and relief. But also, I mean, if it's it's fair to say a somber kind of elation. I think people are surprised that that this was able to happen. I heard from, you know, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton talking about how there's still going to be an empty chair at uh, Wanda Cooper Jones, Amanda Arbery's mother's Thanksgiving table. Um, but that they can rest knowing that they worked as hard as they could for their son. And we heard from Ahmad Arbery's parents, both Wanda Cooper, who you mentioned, and um, Marcus Arbery um, Sr., who yes. who um, they both kind of had different takes on the events and different messages. Kind of talk about what each one said. Yeah, you know, both thanked God. It's it's really clear that uh, faith has played a, a major role in in the lives of of the family members of Ahmad Arbery, who we've been hearing from. Um, Marcus talked about saying he said that history was made today, and that the jury showed that that black kids' lives do matter. Um, and from from Wanda Cooper Jones, Arbery's mother, we've heard something we've heard all along, which that she she's sort of shocked to be here. I think she went through such dark times in the early days of not having any arrests in this case uh, that she, you know, she just said she was sort of stunned and she, she wasn't really sure that this day would ever come, despite the fact that everyone points to her as, you know, having the, the, the faith that this system would work. Let's let's hear from her. Tell you the truth, I never saw this day back in 2020. Mm-hmm. I never thought this day would come. But God is good. Praising God there, Wanda Cooper Jones, Ahmad Arbery's mother, reacting to the verdict this afternoon. And Lisa, uh, so many people credited her with really pushing this forward when a lot of people would have not done that. We just accepted you know, what she was initially told, and that was that her son was killed um, in this this event, but that was it. That's right. And she's been here every single day looking, you know, watching, actually usually putting her head down in court when when the video of her son has been played over and over again, dying and hearing those shots ring out in the courtroom. Uh, she's looked at autopsy photos. She's, you know, her defense attorneys talk about her son's dirty, long toenails. It, it's been an excruciating process for the family. Certainly some closure, but um, as you mentioned when we joined you, there will be an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table today or uh, tomorrow. WABE's Lisa Hagen live for us tonight in Brunswick. Lisa, I'm sure we'll have much more from you coming up later, but thank you for joining us live today. Thanks, Jim. And we now want to go to WABE legal analyst Paige Pate, who is with us also um, uh, via Zoom. And uh, Paige, I, I'm um, I'm not sure. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, Jim. All Sorry right. about that. Hey, that's okay. That mute button, uh, it's pesky, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> it is. I'm glad to have you along. Now, you are in Brunswick as well. Is that correct? That's correct, Jim. been watching the trial very carefully right now. I'm at my office in Brunswick, which is literally on the courthouse square, so I can pretty much see the activity in front of the courthouse. What's going on right now? Well, things are, are calming down a bit. Uh, there were a number, as I think Lisa was talking about, um, people there supporting Ahmad Arbery, supporting the community, making speeches. We heard from the prosecution 
Um, but things have been peaceful throughout the entire trial. And I think that's really important to note. I know in some communities, uh, they have not handled trials like this nearly as well. Uh, but things have been peaceful, but it appears like everybody's uh, heading home for the holidays now. Well, the reason we talk to you is for some analysis and the what next type of questions, and we certainly have those. Um, if you could, though, first break down for us the not guilty murder charges. Roddy Bryan and Greg McMichael, for example, were found not guilty of malice murder, but still guilty of you know regular old murder. Why that right. distinction? Well, Jim, I think the easiest way to think about it is malice murder in Georgia is basically where you intend to kill someone and you have no justification. And the jury clearly thought that's what happened with Travis McMichael. He had the shotgun. He intended to kill the Mott Arbery. They rejected citizen's arrest and self-defense. Now, felony murder, you don't have to intend to kill anyone. In fact, that's not the definition of felony murder. Felony murder is when you're committing some other felony offense and somebody dies as a result of it. So what the jury found was that Greg McMichael was committing aggravated assault, maybe by pointing his pistol at Ahmaud Arbery, maybe by using the truck, and Ahmaud Arbery died. Same analysis for William Bryan. He was using his truck to try to pin in Ahmaud Arbery. That's false imprisonment. The jury found him guilty of that. And since Ahmaud Arbery died as a result, it's felony murder. The outcome the same, however, meaning that no matter which type of murder they will spend the rest of their lives in jail. Is that correct? That is correct. The only issue for the judge now is to determine whether it's going to be a life sentence with the possibility of parole or without the possibility of parole. Uh, and that's what the judge is going to decide, I think, in just a few weeks. Kevin Goff, the attorney for William Ronnie Bryan, has requested a new trial. Uh, what is the standard for the judge granting that? Well, the judge has to find some legal error or believe that this was an unjust result, that the verdict was not supported by the evidence. Uh, I cannot see that happening. I mean, obviously, this judge handled the case, I think, very patiently. I think his legal rulings were correct. Um, so uh, they'll have a motion for new trial. They're entitled to a hearing. But ultimately, I think their only chance at a reversal will be with the Georgia Supreme Court. And even there, I think it's very remote. A federal hate crimes trial is pending at this point. What would that add? And can anything new come out of it, do you think? Well, yes. Um, the federal trial will focus on federal civil rights violations, hate crimes, and that you will see in that case much more evidence of racial prejudice. We'll probably hear the uh, text or see the text messages, social media posts things of that nature to show a racial bias, because that's important on the federal charge. If they're convicted in federal court because someone died as a result of their offense, they get life there. But what it means really for the, the uh, McMichaels and Mr. Bryan is not much, because they're going to be serving a life sentence in a Georgia state prison. They'll go over for the federal trial, then they'll come back to Georgia state prison. And if some point they're released, then they go to federal custody and start all over again. So it's a lengthy sentence. Anything about what happened today, the verdict, uh, the re reaction, anything that sticks out with you? No, I, I think the verdict was consistent with the evidence and consistent with the law. I, I think it's interesting now to watch what's happening with the defense lawyers. I know all of these lawyers. Um, some of them, you know, I've, I've known for decades and, you know, these are people that are not normally associated with this type of behavior or, or this type of belief or position. 
but they made some some critical errors and, and I don't mean strategy errors I just mean just did stupid things during this trial that uh, I think they're now trying to reconcile and hopefully will one day be able to explain uh, and, and so we can better understand why they did what they did. And you're talking some of perhaps the racially charged comments, including talking about the number of black clergy in the audience. Yeah, that's one thing. And then uh, the argument during closing uh, arguments by Greg McMichael's lawyer about the, the dirty, long toenails. And I, I just, you know, as far as a defense strategy, I don't understand it. And it was clearly hurtful. And I just think it was unnecessary. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We got to have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. The death toll in Waukesha, Wisconsin, has risen to six following the mayhem caused by an SUV that plowed through a pre-Christmas parade on Sunday. The accused driver is Daryl Brooks, a 39-year-old out on bail for a previous violent incident. As NPR's Martin Cossey reports, Brooks has become the flashpoint for the national debate over bail. Daryl Brooks had allegedly run somebody else over earlier this month. He was charged in Milwaukee County, then let out on supervised release by posting $1,000 bail. It's that dollar amount that has conservative voices howling. The New York Post ran an editorial calling the parade tragedy the, quote, deadly result of progressive arrogance on bail reform. But the factors leading to his release may have been more complicated than that. I mean, when you look at everything that's happened with covid Milwaukee County, Waukesha County, Dane County, some of the more populated counties were really backlogged. Erica Birma is an experienced criminal defense attorney in Wisconsin. A lot of courts in the populated counties may have reevaluated bond decisions in a way that they wouldn't have done in pre-COVID. Still, it is true that the district attorney of Milwaukee County, John Chisholm, believes in reducing pretrial detention. It's not known if that's what's led to his prosecutor asking for only $1,000 for Brooks, a bail amount that Chisholm on Monday called inappropriately low. Chisholm's critics call him part of a new generation of reformist prosecutors, and they point out that he celebrated the 2019 election of Chesa Bodine as DA of San Francisco. That's a reformist who now faces a recall election. All of this is putting those prosecutors' supporters on the defensive. Of course, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy. Whitney Timus runs Black Women Forward, a group that just commissioned a report praising 19 reformist prosecutors around the country, including Chisholm, for trying to reduce the number of people held in jail and prisons. There will always be people who are out on bail who go out to commit awful crimes. But having said that, we can't continue with a system that's unsustainable and unjust in its over-reliance on incarceration. The main criticism of bail is that it discriminates against the poor. If you don't have money, you wait for trial in jail. Columbia Law School's Kellen Funk studies the wide variety of pretrial release systems in the U.S., and he says it tells you something about those systems when a prosecutor laments that bail was set too low. That can be a euphemism for just saying, I wish bail had been set beyond the defendant's means so that they remain detained pending trial, full stop, which is really to say, I wish there had been an illegal order denying pretrial release outright. Even some of the critics of the reformist prosecutors say they do agree that cash bail should not be used to trap poor people behind bars before trial. Rafael Mengual researches policing and public policy at the Manhattan Institute. He says risk assessment is what matters, and the defendants who pose the biggest risk should stay in jail no matter how much money they have. 
and he says COVID backlogs shouldn't be an excuse for letting them out either. It should never be the case that the system is incapable of meeting out justice in a timely fashion. And what that, that, that should be for us is a warning sign that we need to you know, readjust our investments in our criminal justice systems. In Waukesha, Brooks is back in jail. In theory, he could get out again on bond, but this time the cash bail has been set at $5 million. And under Wisconsin's system, he would have to post the entire amount. Martin Costi, NPR News. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> I didn't know a nigger raped me. Yeah, and guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We got to have a lineup. <laughs> Well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> After seven decades and years of review, the state officially exonerated the Groveland Four. The four African-American men were accused of raping a white woman back in 1949. The governor pardoned the four men last year following an extensive investigation from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. News 6's Mike DeForest is in studio now with details. Mike? Well, Lisa, it was a big deal two years ago when Governor Ron DeSantis granted pardons for the Groveland Four, but their criminal charges remained on the books. They were still accused of crimes. Then, just a few months ago, some new evidence surfaced that gave the state attorney legal grounds to get those charges thrown out. <laughs> Carol Greenlee broke into tears after a judge cleared her father's name 72 years after his arrest. The state's motion to set aside the judgment and sentence of Charles Greenlee is hereby granted. The Groveland Four, Walter Irvin, Samuel Shepard, Charles Greenlee, and Ernest Thomas, were accused of raping a white woman in 1949. That my father was a caring and loving compassionate person that did not rape anybody. Lake County authorities have since concluded the men were the victims of fabricated evidence and false testimony. Just two months ago, investigators discovered a pair of pants worn by one of the men did not contain a semen stain as prosecutors originally suggested to a jury. Because I wanted there to be a legal reason to get here. I State Attorney William Gladson used that new evidence to get the charges thrown out. I hope that this is a start. Because there's a lot of people that didn't get this opportunity. Aaron Newsom's uncle, Ernest Thomas, was killed by a posse before deputies could even arrest him. Another one of the Groveland Four, Samuel Shepard, was shot and killed by a former Lake County Sheriff who claimed the suspect tried to escape. Shepard's cousin was Beverly Robinson. We thank you for finishing, as Carol has said, a job that some did not have the courage to finish. The Groveland Four were originally represented by attorney Thurgood Marshall, who would later become the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. His son traveled to Lake County to see the charges finally dismissed. Perhaps more than any other case my father worked on, this one haunted him. Now, the woman who accused the Groveland Four of rape is now in her 80s. As recently as two years ago, she was still standing by her story that they were the ones who attacked her. But based on the facts that are known today, State Attorney Gladson says no fair-minded prosecutor would ever consider filing criminal charges and no reasonable jury would convict them. Matt and Lisa. Uh, I was in a house last night that was by on my own. 
But I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all. But you know what happens when fire dashes through. They get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And uh, it wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing because my wife understands and I have children from this size on down and even in their young age they understand. I think they would rather have a father or brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to co compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in disgrace. The family of civil rights icon Malcolm X now grieving yet another loss. New York police say Malika Shabazz's daughter found her unconscious in her Brooklyn apartment Monday. EMT pronounced Shabazz dead on the scene. The joint motion is hereby granted. And the record... Her death comes just days after two men were exonerated in the murder of her father, Malcolm X. Muhammad Abdul Aziz and Khalil Islam were cleared last Thursday after spending more than 20 years in prison. Islam died in 2009. Both men insisted they were innocent, while one man admitted to the crime. I'm an 83-year-old man who was victimized by the criminal justice system. A 2020 Netflix documentary entitled Who Killed Malcolm X revealed explosive details showing declassified FBI documents that prove the Bureau framed the two men for murder by intentionally withholding evidence that proved they were innocent. The FBI was deathly afraid of someone like Malcolm X. Tonight, an outpour of support for this iconic family. The daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., Bernice King, tweeted a tribute saying, I'm deeply saddened by the death of Malika Shabazz. My heart goes out to her family. Dr. Shabazz was pregnant with Malika and her twin sister when brother Malcolm X was assassinated. Be at peace, Malika. As the family grieves, they still wait for the medical examiner's determination of her cause of death. And police say Shabazz had pre-existing condition that could have contributed to her death. As of tonight, investigators are not calling her death suspicious. But again, Nicole, as we've seen, it has been quite a tough past few days for this family. Yeah, absolutely. Very odd timing. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 27, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts suggestions observations to share the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate Long live Al Sharpton. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 
if you would like to participate. Long live Al Sharpton. A few things to share uh, before we get to the folks who dialed in. I hope folks, uh, if you got time away from the plantation or what have you, uh, if you hung out with attempted family, friends, whatever it is over the past few days, hope everything was safe, uh, constructive. Uh, if you all ate uh, some, you know, items here and there, I hope you had lots of veggies, uh, didn't uh, get anything that's just going to clog up your arteries and uh, have you set up for what do they call comorbidities uh, with poisonous toxin filled food that's it let's see so many uh, things see my notes here what did I start at the first report they discussed uh, black citizens in the state of Georgia uh, they said right outside of Atlanta they were purchasing land uh, to make like kind of a sanctuary for uh, black people, uh, which I thought was way more constructive than a lot of the ideas that I hear, uh, especially saying that this is kind of a response to racism. I appreciated that they pointed out during the segment that there is a pretty robust history of these sort of uh, attempts, uh, even Chokwe Lumumba down in Mississippi, but there are many different efforts at this sort of thing. Um, I'm just following logic. Uh, there is no sanctuary in the system of white supremacy racism. Um, even if you could get one of these locations, even if you get a whole state, uh, I could see whew, a variety of different ways where white supremacy racism would remain. I mean, number one, you would still have U.S. currency, I suspect, even if you had your own county or state. Uh, and then, you know, that's not to mention they could take drones and dump things all over your area and poison the water supply and probably would still be on the U.S. postal system, like not criticizing the effort, just, you know, using counter racist logic. We have to solve the problem, not going to be able to run from it or create some sort of uh, safe haven, as it were. But purchasing land, setting up this project, much better effort than most of the things that we typically are discussing and what have you. So bravo. Wish him the best with that. Might even be some folks in the uh, cows listeners in the area who might want to check that out. Bravo. Give us a report. Uh, let's see. Next. Um, they discussed in, I guess it's Carson, California. I've not been to that part of the state. Uh, but they said in this area, it was like 25 percent, I believe, black people. And they had this, uh, I guess, waterway and it smelled really bad. And they were coming up with all these excuses that the residents thought were kind of lame, uh, like they were saying, well, first of all, uh, it's just uh, did plant matter. You know, it, it's died and we don't have enough current to push all of this out so it's just dead water it's stagnant it's creating a smell you know it's because of the drought and everything and we can't dredge this area and you heard some of the citizens they were saying no uh, we've lived here for a long time they've had droughts before we've never had anything like this like that does not seem reasonable that does not add up with my lived experience at all very important because we heard that and in the first segment when they were talking about uh, the area right next to Atlanta and they were saying racism has been a problem here and we had a lynching and they said that the black male uh, Johan 
they said that his memory differs from the record. Now I thought, now that's interesting because that is true. Sometimes I say all the time, hey, our memory is not as good as we think. Sometimes we forget or we'll add a detail or what have you. We don't have flawless memories. That is accurate. However, with these sorts of incidents of white supremacy, it's also true that frequently white people have lied about what they did either they lied real time as the lynching was happening about who did what and why they did this and all the rest of it and or their cousins and sons and daughters and nieces and nephews lied after the fact accomplices after the fact as it were where they'll go and uh, erase all of the archival news records of the lynching that has like the photographs of what happened and names the people and all that so I mean it, there might be lots of reasons it might be that this black male's memory is accurate and the record is full of lies because that happens too that's in fact that's in uh, sundown towns James Lowen that's a big part of his book as well he died this year anyway uh but they talked about all that with Carson uh, and the black people there uh, saying that it's not just that it smells bad and we have to go hide in the house and pinch our nose. And, you know, it's kind of an inconvenience. They said this was having a health impact, headaches and all the rest of this. That would be another one that would give me pause. Like, really, this is just stagnant plant matter that's causing all of this. Chemical and biological warfare until proven otherwise. Uh, let's see. They had the segment on uh, Josephine Baker uh, and her being lauded now uh, in France. That segment made me think of white validation. Uh, a lot of times that's where it'll happen. Uh, they'll wait until a black person has died. Uh, they're no longer a threat and then they will exonerate them or make a statue to them or, you know, some other nonsense. Um, I thought it was important as well that they said in that segment and talking about Josephine Baker from St. Louis, born in St. Louis, rather, uh, that black people, no, they said non-white people were thought of as erotic and funny. That, why, I mean, just the starkness of that, Mr. Fuller and others talk all the time, white people practice racism, white supremacy to have fun. It is humorous, laughable to terrorize non-white people especially black people but erotic Whew, the delectable negro and there's a lot of that with uh, Josephine Baker's performance I could have rung a cowbell uh, there as well but hypersexualization uh, of black people black females in this segment specifically uh, I think we went right uh, from that segment about Josephine Baker transitioned right into uh, the piece on the documentary film on Janet Jackson uh, by Jody Gomez and Rachel Abrams uh, unless I'm misinformed Rachel Abrams is a white woman journalist Jody Gomez is a black female victim of racism they put this uh, documentary together malfunction which I have not seen uh, I thought it was interesting them talking about how Janet Jackson's career went down from the infamous Super Bowl moment. Justin Timberlake's career went up from that moment and they kind of document and, you know, go back and look at the footage and, and all what have you. Justin Timberlake's been invited back to the Super Bowl. No hard feelings about all that. I guess they haven't invited Janet Jackson back uh, to do any performances or what have you. But I thought it was fascinating within that segment. The filmmakers, they said that, you know, this segment was about, you know, 
boys will be boys. I thought to be accurate, it should be young white boys will be boys. Uh, and a part of this exoneration and why did this happen? And, you know, is it because he's a young temple talking about Timberlake because he is uh, a young white man that he can get away with all this. So you say all that and then you come back in the same breath and say, it's not a black and white thing. Now, I think that may have been the black female who said all that, but it would just be victims guaranteed qualified. And this happens all the time. People will be, I've heard literally I've heard people that I went to school with. Uh, where we spoke briefly, minimized contact, and they said they were talking about Genesis 6 and said, I don't think that's a black and white thing. I don't think that had anything to do with racism. If people remember, that was way back in Louisiana where they had uh, these black students uh, at a school and they had the uh, the tree of justice or hope or whatever it was. And the t uh, principal like threatened them told them I have or I think it was the attorney said I have your life in my hands uh, after this incident happened at school where they were upset about uh, sitting at this tree or whatever but yeah you told me that this has nothing to do with racism what are you talking about people say that about the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the Ahmad Arbery that's nothing to do with racism get out of here consistent uh, again if it's nothing to do with racism then I don't know why it would matter that Justin Timberlake is young a young white man incidentally they pivoted right from this is nothing to do this is not a black or white thing this is intersectionality Ugh. that uh, concept again loathsome uh, let's see next I thought it was significant the segment where they discussed uh, COVID vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccines for children. And they were talking about in Arizona with uh, so-called Latinos, non-white people, and how it was difficult and battling misinformation. They spoke with the one uh, Latino couple, so-called, and uh, the wife, uh, what they say, they, they call it, they, she threw her husband under the bus. She put all the blame culpability on him said he just he gets all this social media mumbo jumbo and he just believes it all he just takes in all the rumors you know about the vaccine and COVID is fake and all the rest of it now I, I thought the segment was significant mostly I hear these type of segments about black people you know having all these conspiracy theories so cold and they're just so goofy and don't want to take the vaccine that's mostly where I've heard these segments again I have not heard any segments where they specifically identify these are individuals classified as white and they any sort of rumor, gossip, gobbledygook, quackery that you can think of about COVID-19. They are on it. And I mean, wow, not doing the vaccine. What's up with these? I have not heard any reports specifically identifying white people and why they have been exhibiting these behaviors. It's just been isolated to non-white people and all of us second in all these rumors and what have you on uh, social media. Uh, they had the report on Julia Cruz. Uh, she's the former officer right in Missouri where she, I guess, got it was a report of a shoplifting. And so she goes and she shoots Ashley Hall, black female. They didn't even clarify in the report, unless I just wasn't paying attention, whether or not Ashley Hall was actually shoplifting. Was she the person who was suspected? Had she actually done any shoplifting at all? Or did, you know, she just showed up and, and shot this female, black female who, you know, she suspected or thought might have done something incorrect. 
anyway uh, they fast forward through all of that to get to restorative justice they said I believe this is the first time that they've used this process uh, in order to uh, say hey you all can meet the victim the perpetrator can meet talk it out and come to some sort of solution amongst yourselves and the solution is that this white woman former officer who shot a black female in the back no less not gonna be charged she's forgiven so consistent I it would be in my opinion if they want to talk about progress when you show me a black person where they do this black male accused of raping someone or whatever and yet we're going to do restorative justice you're forgiven no you've had a tough time man we'll call Al Sharpton in we'll do a big group prayer and we'll let it ride Uh, speaking of black males and restorative justice, man. So they had the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that happened at the end of last week. Then they had uh, the Ahmad Arbery that was uh, this week where they had the verdict and they had the verdict in Virginia as well with the Unite the Right $25 million and all that to make them pay some money for all that uh, racial terrorism out in Charlottesville 2017. All of that happens and then they have the incident in Wisconsin with this parade, Christmas parade, where this black male, Daryl Brooks, uh, allegedly runs through the parade, kills six people. It was uh, at first five, but then someone else passed away. So now it's six people uh, and injures all these other folks. And I mean, horrendous, the details. And they give like had all these old older folks who were at the parade, like in their 70s and 80s. And they got pictures of uh, children's strollers that have been run over and all the rest of it and I mean it is just the worse the more you read the worse it gets like they said oh my gosh this guy he's got this long criminal history there uh, Mr. Brooks is a black male uh, domestic abuse and what was he doing out of jail anyway and why wasn't he in the death penalty bring back the gas chamber and firing squad all the rest of it uh, I just said why you heard the report where they were saying oh man I don't want to hear anything else about restorative justice and doing away with uh, bail these sort of animals got to be caged everybody's got to be locked up you know let's get the Groverland 4 let's get them back in prison too like that sort of attitude uh, will be prolific uh, just keep putting that image of like there's going to be a trial with this he's in custody right so just keep putting that image up keep putting the image up of the children that were hit and the elderly people that were hit I don't know enough even details about all this to figure out what happened and you know all the rest of it I'm sure more details on that will be to come but I mean wow Mr. Fuller when he talks about monsters and monstrosities racist white supremacists will promote this for all they can this happened right in Wisconsin after uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and all that talk about self defense uh, let's see I mentioned uh, the case of the Groveland for the black males uh, who were falsely accused of rape number one I said this last week uh, when they exonerated the, the uh, two black male killers of Minister Malcolm X uh, where they will wait 60 70 sometimes even longer to exonerate a black person or to free the slaves or whatever it is it's been you know all these years decades and now they're, oh yeah I don't think those four niggers actually uh, raped that white woman and did, and did you hear 
the white woman in her 80s, octogenarian they call it. She is steadfast. The niggers did it. They said, wait. They said, no fair minded person would come to that conclusion. There's no evidence to support that. Like, there's no way a prosecutor could look at this and prosecute. Like, what are you talking about? They did it. And she's steadfast. They did it. They did it. They're rapists. Raping niggers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then they tell me that it's white men. Tell me it's intersectionality. Tell me it's white men. Patriarchy. That's what they say. All of these white women, uh, the Emmett Till case as well, uh, Carolyn, uh, what is it, Carolyn Bryant Mosley, I think she remarried, Mosby, I think she remarried, uh, Dunham, that's it, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, she remarried, same thing, uh, who said that Emmett Till raped her or whistled at her or whatever it was, all of these recalcitrant lying white women should be charged. They said the same thing with uh, the white woman in Emmett Till's case, like, hey, you conspire and lie in a case that results in a murder. You should be charged as an accomplice. There is no statute of limitations on murder. This white woman lied in a case that resulted in a wrongful conviction. <laughs> Charge her as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, Oh, man. Last thing I'll get in, then we get to the callers. Um, Minister Malcolm X's uh, daughter and Betty Shabazz as well. Their daughter, um, Malika Shabazz. Uh, she passed away. They said it was suspicious. I read numerous reports and they didn't have a lot of detail as to what caused uh, her sudden death at the age of 56. I mean, that's not exactly, you know old age even under the system of white supremacy that's not you're not exactly supposed to just keel over at 56 um i saw reports where they said uh, she you know had other uh health concerns uh in fact i'll share now this is bet i normally don't read bet i'm just reading this one because they had details that were specific about what i'm saying the name of their report is nothing appears suspicious in death of Malcolm X's daughter, Malika Shabazz, who had long-term illness. Uh, and this is from November 24. Uh, no evidence of foul play has been found so far in the death of Malcolm X's daughter, Malika Shabazz, New York City's police commissioner stated Tuesday, November 23rd, as the city's medical examiner continued to investigate the cause of her death. NYPD commissioner Dermot Shea said police investigators learned that Shabazz had an undisclosed long-term illness from other authorities, the medical examiner's office, and talking to the family, according to the New York Daily News, adding that nothing appears suspicious. Uh, it goes on, we are investigating the cause of death. Uh, we are investigating and the cause of death is pending at the final results of additional testing, but the death does not appear to be suspicious following initial review, a statement from the medical examiner's office said. I'll just stop there. Uh, Malika Shabazz, she was uh, in utero. Uh, she's a twin. She was in utero at the time uh, of her father's assassination, uh, even at the time of the house bombing that was a week before his assassination. So certainly long-term illness. I absolutely can understand epigenetics got it but it just 
it struck me as uh, particularly the timing like this to just happen days after these two black males are exonerated and then this happened they had I saw some reports where they said it, it may have been food accidental food poisoning uh, we'll have to see once they get test results back but certainly uh, condolences uh, to their family uh, but it just no coincidences it, it may certainly turn out that that's the case if she had other medical conditions uh, and or if they said it was food poisoning or, or whatever else but just strikes me as very suspicious uh, the timing uh, for her to pass away right after this case just odd lots of those type of odd occurrences uh, within the system uh, the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, if you look below pay, the button, uh, you should see links for PayPal, Cash App, uh, and Venmo. The Cash App address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested. Uh, over a decade hopefully we have provided constructive accurate information on what white supremacy racism is how it works uh, you can also invest via our wish list at Amazon it is listed under Gus T Renegade uh, again enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have nabbed an item or three over the years feel free to hook up your black brother Gusty uh, for Negra Friday so called uh, I'm told they have lots of uh, amazing discounts uh, over at Amazon over the weekend all the way up to uh, Black Monday or Negra Monday whatever it is uh, feel free Gusty Renegade at Amazon dot com uh, for this broadcast if folks could uh, refrain from using metaphors specifically we had so many of them uh, this week as usual so Jim Crow laws smelling like a rose speak truth to power uh, lived black experience I don't know what that one is um, muddy the what they said that about good old Al Sharpton that Al Sharpton muddies the waters uh, race soldiers they will use metaphors to transport ideas of white supremacy racism muddy the waters and or uh, Wanda Cooper Jones that's Ahmaud Arbery's mom that she went through dark times spreading ideas of white supremacy racism and to practice deception uh, victims myself included we are still learning so sometimes we don't have all the logic to articulate our views we will substitute an analogy comparison metaphor frequently this just adds more confusion uh, so if we could make an effort to be precise specific with our word choice that would be great uh, I will give reminders uh, no metaphors please thank you kindly uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts uh, that would be great just make sure everybody gets at least one chance to share their views 
Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We had any folks, if you traveled uh, for the holidays, because I've been saying, you know, no unnecessary travel. If you did travel, let us know how it was. Was it, you know, the worst experience ever? Was it about normal, best flight experience? Let us know. That way we can make better uh, decisions, have more information. Uh, and if you did any get togethers uh, with attempted family, friends, you know, whatever it is, uh, did you survive it? Was racism, white supremacy discussed? Was it constructive? Uh, or did people just abstain for all of that still while, you know, so much madness uh, is engulfing the planet? Oh, and I forgot there was one of the uh, the new COVID variant. I definitely wanted to hear as well from parents. If you're considering or if you have had your younger children vaccinated, let us know about that, too. But the new COVID-19 variant reportedly Omicron OM, I think it's O-M-I-C-R-O-N Omicron. Uh, this has been used to justify prohibiting travel travel from individuals who reside on the continent. They've been saying that, oh man, this is causing a big problem on the continent. They had a big article in the New York Times earlier today reporting that. So that is something to be aware of. I'm sure we'll have uh, more reports on that as we roll. But Omicron, that is supposedly the new variant. And they're saying they're not sure how it's going to respond to the vaccine and boosters and all the rest of it. But the one thing they do know is that we those dark people on the continent are not coming up in here with their Omicron. At least that seems to be the early report. So folks can keep an eye on that. Uh, but if we have parents, if you have had your children vaccinated or considering, that would be grand to hear. If you went and did some traveling or did the whole holiday thing, how did it go? Was it safe? Was racism, white supremacy discussed? Let us know. Uh, let's see. Folks, I'm not sure if folks are spectating, still kicking it with the fam. Lots of uh, spectators thus far. So hopefully folks will get it together and have a thought to share. Again, certainly uh, attempted parents, because uh, I know a lot of folks were, I guess, processing or trying to recon or, uh, reconcile if they were going to do the vaccine. Uh, are they going to do the booster? Is their job going to force them and all the rest of it? So uh, the children at were at least uh, under 12. I know we had some folks who had children who were a little bit older, college age and that sort of thing. Uh, but for younger children, uh, 12 and under, uh, if folks have had to make that uh, decision, yay or nay, uh, that would kind of be good to get some input on that. Uh, if you were compelled for, you know, whatever reason, school or if you had ch uh, a child who was uh excited I guess I would say who they wanted uh, to get the vaccine they've been convinced by the science the data that they'd seen I guess that'd be good to hear from uh, as well but if we have parents uh, attempted parents uh, who are navigating all of this uh, with offspring let us know uh, and if we have any folks who did any traveling uh, within all of this let us know um, I know here in Seattle I didn't do any traveling, obviously, but uh, here in Seattle, uh, they said that there was, uh, I guess, an uptick, uh, meaning an increase in travel in comparison to last year. Uh, they said that it was closer to, uh, I guess, travel patterns closer to 2019 
prior to COVID-19. But they said that it hadn't been crazy uh, at SeaTac Airport, at least here. Uh, They said that people, you know, the flow had been pretty good. People had been going in and out, no major traffic jams uh, getting to the airport. So I don't know. I haven't been to the airport, but that would be good to hear uh, as well. My recommendation would still be no unnecessary travel. I'm not interested in any uh, staffing shortages or the weather surprises. That's the other variable. In addition to people uh, getting on and and causing a ruckus about masks uh, and proof of vaccination and all the rest of the things that people have been brawling about the past year or so. Now you have to factor in weather as well, uh, depending on where you're trying to fly from or to or, you know, whatever it is, even if you have a connection. Uh, I would not want to be in one of those places where you, you know, end up flying, especially if you have a layover and you get stuck somewhere or have some sort of weather delay. And then you have to figure out what kind of COVID protocols they have in that particular city or at that particular airport and all the rest of it. It just it is a lot or at least that's what I imagine. I haven't traveled in a minute, so that's what I imagine. If that is not the case and people, you know, have been able to travel and it's been the best flight experience ever. Let us know that one, too. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, folks are getting done with their spectating. Hopefully they are done with uh, their fraternizing with attempted family and friends and are ready to roll share some counter racist views Uh, let's see first few folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed can I be heard yes sir yeah um, to answer your question um, I I did travel for um, well we don't celebrate the holidays but I did take my offspring away from Southern California, we went to Zion National Park in Bryce National Park in Utah. Um, we didn't really run into, I would say, overt racism. It was a lot of, um, I guess, what you would classify as like um, Indian, not Native Americans, but Indians from like the country of India or like Sri Lanka. A lot of, I, I noticed a lot of those um, people were, were out and about traveling and out at the national parks when we we're out hiking and getting back to nature. My reason for um, actually taking my offspring out, one of my my offspring is a straight A student and, you know, pre-COVID and all that stuff, you know, being locked in the house and all that stuff. So just to get away, to get their get her mental health right and just to be able to let her get out and get some free time. And I have two other offspring that are young, too, that like to that like to burn up energy. So I decided to take them hiking just to get them out and get them, get them away. I mean, it is a six-hour drive from where I'm located in Southern California, but... We did that just to get away and just, you know, just to recharge and actually actually get away from my work environment just to get my my mind right, too. And another thing, vaccinations. My oldest, who's in high school, we I was forced to get the vaccination because of my job situation um, to keep my job because I work for a government agency. And then my my oldest, she didn't have to get it. It was a choice for the school that she goes to. But. She decided to have to rediscuss it to go ahead and get the vaccination because she would have to get tested all the time. And due to her being a straight A student, she might end up missing work if she tested positive for for the virus and have to do the the quarantine thing because they'll leave her, they'll make her stay home. 
and she would have to do stuff online and we didn't know how that worked because she was taking some AB classes. So she decided to just um, get vaccinated and that worked out for us. My, ironically, my youngest, who just is turning eight tomorrow, he heard about the vaccine being able for five to 11 year olds and he wants to get it, but I'm not sure about that. And then also have a 10 year old that I'm not sure if I want them to get it, but next year she will be going to public school from private. So we'll, when we, when we'll do more research and then see what happens with that. Um, that's all I want to share. Spectacular. That is awesome. I am envious. Utah is really pretty. Um, and they went out to do some hiking like that is uh, I was just been talking about that. Like, man, if you can, if you're going to get together and hang out with, you know, attempted family or whatever, friends, whatever it is, um, you can eat, hopefully eat some healthy, tasty, nutritious food and then include some exercise. I said, I said that exactly. You can go out hiking, go for a walk, do some yoga, lots of different, do some meditation, lots of different things uh, that you could do. That is spectacular like i'm so envious uh, and and he drove unless i miss her he says like a six-hour drive from california uh, i said that uh things that you can drive that way you don't have to be at the airport and fight off everybody at san francisco international or lax or whatever it is um you can skip that you don't have to deal with all the harassment and potential racism at the airport and boop, go drive enjoy the drive enjoy the scenery or what have you spectacular um and mental health <laughs> love it job well done sir uh that is interesting uh about the vaccine uh for the school situation like i can tell and i think many situations have been set up like that to make it uh they'll say to make it more convenient right like hey if you don't get vaccinated you have to do these tests all the time might have to miss class or miss work, you know, as it were, which might mean you miss an exam or, you know, you can miss an assignment and we don't know how that could go. Wouldn't it just be easier to get the vaccine? Like, I feel like they set up a lot of situations where it's uh, deliberately, like they've said, uh, like deliberately to kind of coerce you into doing the vaccine, which might be for the best. I'm not a medical professional, but it just seems that way uh, from my observation. That's interesting. I think he said at least two of his uh, children, uh, younger children were, yes, let's do the vaccine. <laughs> even the, I think he said even the eight-year-old has been persuaded. Like he's, I've read the data. I'm on board. Let's do the vaccine. Like, wow, that's uh, right on. Like, that's why I said so much to consider as a parent. Like, whew, that is a hard job to have to try and go through all that and what's the school policy going to be and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. Then like he said, he's vaccinated. So I'm sure his offspring know that like, what do you mean? We can't, I can't get the vaccine. You're vaccinated. What's the problem? Like, uh, woo. good luck with all that, sir. Uh, let's see other folks who, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share line should be open. Proceed. heard uh let's see rachel in new york yes we can hear you your volume is a little bit low so uh through all of your uh a plus work mommying if you can turn the volume up or get a little bit closer to your microphone or both um can i be heard now yes ma'am much better, better. yes ma'am okay. um so i did not travel for um for thanksgiving um I stayed home with all my children and um my my 
attempted family. Um, as for the COVID vaccine, my eldest got the COVID vaccine because she has asthma, and I was worried that when she went to school that it would be an issue. And then... Um, um, that's it for now. Much obliged, uh, Rachel in New York. Uh, lots to consider. I think there were some school considerations. There's well, that's why I said there's so much to consider. Like I don't, I don't think too many of the like K through 12 schools. I don't think too many of them are requiring. Now I know some of the colleges it's different, but I don't think too many of the K through through 12 are requiring. It just even became. Uh, very recent that uh, under 12 uh, were approved for the vaccine so yeah I don't think very many are requiring it but man that is a lot to uh, a lot to have to process uh, and then have to explain that people talk about not wanting to explain racism white supremacy to their children what does that conversation sound like uh, like trying to explain COVID-19 and the vaccine and then while these people are, you know, grousing and I'm not going to do it. And, you know, I got to go stomp around in the street, in fact, because I'm not going to wear a mask and anything like what does that conversation sound like? We're in Michigan. They're going to kidnap the governor over this. And I got to explain this to my five year old. I would rather explain racism. But anyway, and then, uh, there is some overlap. But anyway. Number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we have anybody, if you hung out with your attempted family or friends, whatever it is, uh, over these few days uh, with, I mean, it seems like pretty much every so-called thanksgiving there's something with regards to racism white supremacy if it's not i think one year it was they had just announced that they were not going to indict uh michael brown jr's killer uh in st louis uh, and that was how we went into so-called thanksgiving so it seems like pretty frequently there's some major event uh related to white supremacy racism uh around this time so with all of the trials uh and what have you and i guess even the parade incident uh i don't know if racism white supremacy came up uh during any of the discussions uh i'm always of the opinion if it can be constructive do so uh if it's just going to provoke an argument if you know you have a lot of folks who have a lot of racism avoidance disorder and they're just going to say that you're militant and rowdy and messing up a good time and they just want to enjoy the turkey and what have you victims guaranteed qualified minimize conflict let them enjoy their turkey <laughs> I wouldn't even wouldn't even fuss at them about the toxic food let them enjoy minimize conflict they'll bring it up and ask questions when they really want to know sincerely uh, while see if folks have any uh, comments to share if they are just spectating and or hanging out with their attempted relatives uh, I will say because I think this was even though you know we are not entertainment I'm just bringing this up because it is related to racism white supremacy and I get to plug the uh, book club as well in fact I'll get two book club 
uh, plugs, but the first will be, wow, it is very rare that Gusty enjoys films that have a predominantly black cast. Like most of the time, I run the other way. Black Panther, Butler, I mean, it's pretty much nothing that I can think of. Uh, if it's got a lot of black people in it, get me out of here. Like, you can't pay me to watch it. Uh, get Out, even though that didn't have a predominantly black class. That doesn't count. Scratch that one. Um, I said, as soon as I saw it, and I saw, like, the trail. I didn't just, you know, like, read a report that this was coming or what have you. I saw some of the, like, film clips. As soon as I got wind, metaphor, that King Richard was coming out, I wanted to see it. We read uh, Black and White, The Way I See It, Richard Williams' autobiography in the book club, 2014, the same year Michael Brown Jr. was killed. Phenomenal. Uh, It is right at my top 10, like right there on the outside, probably right next to... uh, the half has never been told Edward Baptist anyway uh, it came out this week and I suppose for the holidays because that's what a lot of people do holidays oh let's go to the movies um, wow I saw it this week spectacular I was so impressed um, I think I was most impressed uh, seeing an attempted black family be affectionate, have fun together, laughing, being silly, like that was so, uh, just seems, for me at least, seems so unusual. Uh, there are no white saviors, uh, no white sex partners, regardless of how the story ends. No white sex partners, no white saviors, uh, no despicable black characters. Uh, even like just uh, overflowing with uh, black hardworking black parents with a vision for their offspring and really I was going to say black children but really everybody with uh, just mountains metaphor of black self respect that's what I saw like it was it reminded me of so many of the segments of uh, Mr. Williams book like I had to go back to his book and kind of reread the portions that I highlighted and what have you and it's in the archives I'm sure might even have a person or two who is with us when we read all that but wow I was so impressed um it not I mean if you followed the Williams sisters at all you I mean you know how all of this ends you know bravo lots of money lots of wins would be lots of racism too um but I mean yeah you know how this ends so it's not like you learned something per se maybe if you uh, maybe people that are younger uh, people that you know are 20 and under maybe uh, who are not as familiar with all of them or if you didn't read the book and that sort of thing uh, but I feel like they have so much they've garnered so much attention and rightfully so uh, for all of their spectacular accomplishments that many people kind of know lots of aspects of their story so a lot of this will not be new information per se uh, but just wow uh, seeing it all uh, kind of portrayed and just black self-respect uh, and the racism is there flagrantly. Uh, anybody, you know, if you're familiar, uh, they didn't even do Indian Wells. I think that was one of the things that I was kind of struck with in watching the film. 
uh, is that they kind of stop it so early on. And I mean, it's so many, you know, things you could do many, many movies, uh, how they do like a 10 part movie. You could probably do that easily uh, on the Williams sisters and their extraordinary career. Um, but just, yeah, it, it was uh, it was just a hoot. Uh, and even some of the, the little uh, interesting ways that racism can I mean, they had the direct uh, the way that the other white players and coaches and league officials and all that, the racism that they practiced against Mr. Williams and uh, just to have this uh, unruly, militant, black attempted father uh, out here talking about what was going to happen to his black daughters in this overwhelmingly white sport uh, is, whew, I mean, racism, white supremacy, enough said. Uh, but then just like the little subtle things, uh, like I think there's a moment where Venus Williams is, is first starting to get attention for being like a tennis prodigy. And this is literally simultaneously. They're reading the newspaper about her accomplishments in the newspaper. And then like over their shoulder, you can see the beating of Rodney King happening on the screen, like kind of putting them contextually uh, where their, I guess, adolescence is happening side by side all of what's and I mean they're growing up in southern LA so I mean this is their backyard metaphor uh but seeing all of this happen and uh, yeah bravo uh thoroughly enjoyed it and this is the second time this calendar year which has been awful but the second time I have seen a film with a predominantly black cast where I did not want to vomit one night in Miami was the other. Uh, I think I mentioned that at the beginning of this. So that I guess book in the year. I started the year and ended the year with films that were constructive, mostly black people, uh, predominantly black people on the screen and constructive from beginning to end. And obviously racism dominant thing. Mr. Fuller said that he was like, that's the only time on a planet in a universe dominated by white supremacy, racism, the only time black people start to sound logical the only time we start to make sense the time that we start to really do our best work is when we start to address our cosmic assignment what were we put here to do replace white supremacy with justice everything all of our activities should in some way directly indirectly link back to that objective and both of those movies I would say <laughs> Uh, in their own way are addressing that I, pretty directly I would say yeah super directly they yeah as direct as can be as direct as can be are addressing that anywho let's see other folks who dialed in 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, let's see seems like we still have uh, lots of spectators again don't know if they're uh, hanging with their attempted relatives and having to sneak off to get to a quiet area uh, and or doing other things that are relative to the festivities uh, but let us know hopefully it's been constructive if you had a constructive time well then right on hopefully you've eaten some uh, constructive goodies uh, with other victims of racism and done some things to uh, kind of rejuvenize and heal from all the the trauma that we have suffered through in this uh, calendar year let's see uh, 
caller in Florida? Do you have commentary to share, sir? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I, I was thinking about that segment where I guess that was a, a white person that was speaking, um, and he was relentless, in my opinion, on observing uh, Al Sharpton just being present, you know, in the uh, the, the, the courtroom uh, with the um, Aubrey case uh, and I just didn't get any connection outside of you know the of the practice of white supremacy uh, on you know why can't he provide support with his presence with the history that he's been um, uh putting forth action and speech to counter against racism. And, you know, the person was bringing up, I think that was, uh, I think, Tawana Brawley, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and I think that was like an older case. And I just don't, once again, uh, get the connection, you know, like, especially with you have a white man and a white woman being, I guess I can say openly, more directly, uh, bold, but emboldened in how they're practicing racism, talking about fingernails and all of that, like toenails and everything. Like when you got people on camera, um, pale skin or, you know, white children, white people, and they said they were the ones stealing things from out of that neighborhood or from somewhere. Uh, but Mr. Uh, Aubrey didn't steal anything, but they're having all of these descriptions that doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not this person do a, a commit a crime. Okay. So, you know, a white man and a white woman. Um, my, my next thing was, there, there was like a conversation about racism uh, on the Thanksgiving day. I found it deconstructive. I didn't really offer too much of a response. I just asked a question uh, because my aunt and her uh, uh, partner, you know, in a relationship, they went to, um, uh, I think it was a Waffle House, and I know you mentioned, Gus, about going out to these uh, restaurants and everything, um, but it was uh, an issue with the, um, I believe it was plastic or paper. I think they received, like, styrofoam, you know, and I knew where it was going, right? Uh they they received styrofoam cups and plastic plates and all of that, and they were the only people in the uh, restaurant. And so, my aunt said this to the guy that blackmail us speaking about this. So, um, you know, 
they go on. He goes on in the story and says that they see that a white couple comes in and they're given uh, silverware and plates and glasses and everything like that. So uh, he asks the waitress, which is somebody classified as white, uh, you know, is there a reason that you gave this white couple over here silverware and glass and glass plates and everything and we got styrofoam and he said that the response she gave was well i didn't feel like washing the dishes something something like that uh and he said no 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 then my aunt after that said so you feel like washing dishes when it comes to them but not for us and she just said the white person said yes so I guess they're talking about, uh, you know, filing a report for that uh, encounter. But that came up as a means of talking about racism. So, you know, I asked him, I said, like, did you record any of this? And he told me, yes. Like, yeah, I recorded it. You know, he got on the phone, uh, you know, on the video saying that, yeah, you know, I, you know, I recorded it. Um, and there was one other thing I wanted to mention about the Janet Jackson uh, segment. That's interesting, too, that they try to make it seem like, oh, it's intersectionality. And the person mentioned racism but says it's not a black or white thing. You know, whatever that can mean, it sounds like they're trying to uh, dismiss the effect of uh, racism, white supremacy that had an effect on her career and what they, and how they mistreated uh, Michael, Michael Jackson, you know, and Justin Timberlake, um, I guess was asked about this recently, I believe, but see, that also makes him, in my opinion, uh, person, a person who's practicing racism because I think he apologized about Britney Spears first oh, oh and then uh Janet Jackson but let's put Britney Spears first even though she's smashing our windows and shaved her head but you know but hey she's classified as white she can do no wrong and then just one last thing the just once again the Justin Bieber uh video he's making nigga jokes right but as they say <laughs> uh boys will be boys I guess that's what the quote is. And then the, the, the guy named Gus, or Gus, I don't know if you heard about him, but it's the guy named Christopher Belter who was given probation after, um, I guess, like the, the rapes or the sexual assault. I think that's the term they used on the four females. I guess they were white. But, oh, you know, I, the judge is like, I don't want to I don't want to ruin his life or something like that. That just sounds like the Brock Turner, I believe. I don't want to use a metaphor, but that's the name that came up, too. And then Jeffrey Dahmer is plenty of um, names I can put in. But that's all I wanted to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Incredible. Uh, much obliged, 
collar in Florida. Absolutely ridiculous. Let's see. I just wanted to the Al Sharpton, all that focus on Al Sharpton. That was from what well, it's a uh, C uh, C-SPAN. They have a like weekly show where it might even be a couple times a week. Uh, Washington Journal. Uh, we had a listener who emailed uh, me the segment from this week. That was the one. It was the whole segment. Just context was about uh, the Ahmad Arbery verdict. Uh, they had come in guilty, and so they just were going to have people call in. What do you think about this uh, guilty verdict? Uh, and so the one fella called in, and he, you know, at no count, Al Sharpton, and black people are looting and burning down stores and killing each other. And I didn't see Al Sharpton hop for none of that. Where was he at then? And the and the moderator had to hop in and be like, uh, "Sir, do you have any thoughts about the 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 verdict?" Um, I get all that about Mr. Sharpton and the looting, uh, but we're talking about the verdict right now. He didn't understand how it related either. That's the same thing I was saying. Like he just wanted to go on his little racist tirade and, you know, get a few words in about Al Sharpton. Then it was a whole different person who called in later and said, hey, I agreed with the verdict. I thought they should have been found guilty, but that no count Al Sharpton. He is the greatest racist in the history of the world and Tawana Brawley and all the rest like <sighs> long live Al Sharpton uh, let's see the and speaking of the looting because that was a big uh, topic for this week I could have easily had reports about that because I was in many different uh, cities uh, where they had folks just randomly going to these areas, uh, pricier shopping centers and grabbing merchandise and absconding. Uh, the security footage that I've seen thus far, I certainly couldn't even see if this was exclusively black people. Uh, I would bank that there probably were some white people. Uh, if this is any sort of like organized, coordinated thievery, and especially because it was happening in different cities like oh yeah some white people were involved in this uh, somehow some way especially nobody got arrested like I've seen how they respond to black people who just go out and you know decide that they're going to lie out in the street or whatever the case is like I can't see that sledgehammers and all the rest of it and no response okay I'm sure there'll be more to come uh, on all of that um the Mr. Christopher Belter free white and 21. I played that segment uh, this week. That sound clip, one of the best phrases, accurate phrases for our context. Um, this fella, this, I, I have to read the report just to make sure I got it right. Like a man who pleaded guilty to the rape and sexual assault of four teenage girls will avoid prison time after a New York state judge said time behind bars would be inappropriate. So this could be child rape if they're like under 16. Like, I don't know the exact ages of the victims, but I mean, if, you know, he's 19, 18 years old, if they're under 16, like this would be child rape, not, you know, anyway, Christopher Belter, now 20, entered a plea deal in 2019 in which he agreed to plead guilty to attempted first degree sexual abuse, third degree rape, and two counts of second degree sexual abuse according to court documents the charges stem from four separate incidents in 2017 and 2018 
in Lewiston, New York. The documents state he and the victims were all under all under 18 at the time. Belter was placed on interim probation for two years with limits on his Internet use and access to pornography. The documents state. But he violated the terms of his probation, according to court documents. Judge Matthew J. Murphy denied him youthful offender status and ruled he be sentenced as an adult. The documents state uh, <laughs> he violated the terms of his probation like <sighs> they were just talking about being angry about bail reform. Like, why isn't this fella? Like what they cut the poster child for bail reform? Like we got some serial rapist and I hope he's a registered sex offender. Like they normally put that at the very beginning. Like uh, they do mention Brock Turner in this report later down. Uh, yeah, he should. I hope he's identified as a sex offender. But I mean, that's absurd. Like he should be the poster child, so-called. When they want to talk about, you know, this is absurd. Like serve your time truth and sentencing you get convicted like hey you did the crime do your time let's stop you know pussyfooting with these criminals and calling ourselves like, this is the type of person that they should be talking about like my goodness like I have no idea again the ages would be significant to me because I don't know if he was 17 even 16 how old were they? they said they were teens how old were they 15 14 13 that would be, you know, significant, like what what age they were when he's doing all and then serially carrying out and then he violated <sighs> being classified as white. I mean, this would be another one. They talked about Kyle Rittenhouse, like if he was black and had, you know, 17 year old black fella with his assault rifle and sauntered out of state uh, saying, I'm you know, going to go deal with these white ruffians. He would have been treated substantially differently. In fact, in the report that we heard. They said a black Kyle Rittenhouse would not have walked out of the state of Wisconsin alive. He would have been killed in the street that night, which to me sounds very believable, even if he hadn't been armed. Imagine that a black person, especially if these were white teenage girls, imagine that a black Christopher Belter who's violating probation and done this repeatedly. And he's just going to be, you know, and to get the same verbiage time behind bars would be inappropriate yes he had remorse too I guess he was sorry so uh, system of racism white supremacy where were the victims at I hope they came to court and you know gave them what for like we are gonna you know get this judge voted out of here and all the rest of it like uh yeah they should you know rally get their rally all of their white feminine powers and you know get it done because that is absurd and again they would not have functioned that way if this were a black person like he would have been sentenced and that is that um let's see make sure we did not miss any folks uh other folks with commentary they want to make sure that they get in number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we'll give folks a few seconds see if they are spectating or have had their fill 
that is amazing. I do want to make sure uh, I say something about the whole uh, Waffle House. Number one, I feel like it's been so many reports and I totally get it. Like most people are not lames like old Gus T. They do not, you know, sit around and look for reports and information on racism, white supremacy. Most people. But it seems like there have been like a substantial number of reports about black people being treated really badly at waffle houses. Lots of places where you go out to eat. I say that all the time, as he stated, try to minimize the opportunities for white people to put things in your mouth as best you can. Um, But like waffle, I mean, it seems like they're in the news all the time for some sort of incorrect behavior, racist behavior towards black patrons. Like I even like personally know black people who have, you know, had had literal cases where they had to go to court because of an incident that happened at Waffle House. Like beyond the fact that, I mean, you want to talk about uh, obesity, like generally they do not have the healthiest food options at the Waffle House. Uh, As someone myself who's eaten at the Waffle House, I don't remember ever eating anything that I would say, oh, yeah, that is highly nutritious. If you want to fight off the Rona, get, you know, two healthy servings of this number five at the wall. Like, eh. anyway, he said they go in. They sit, they get their order. Let me get a number five. Let me get a number three. OK, boom. They come back with the styrofoam cups, styrofoam plates. Now. I could wait, you know, you could also look around. He said they, they look around. Everybody else has normal, what I would expect, glass, plate, not uh, styrofoam. Incidentally, like styrofoam is supposed to be, they talk all that about going green. Like that is like the worst. They'll kill you if you have a styrofoam cup in Seattle proper. Like literally, they'll hang you up by your toes. Um, they don't even, they don't even have plastic utensils in Seattle much less a styrofoam cup. Like, you got to be kidding me. I don't even think they mail uh, styrofoam peanuts here in uh, like packaging or what have you anymore. That's supposed to be like the worst thing for the environment. Anyway, so they drop styrofoam cups. Everybody else has their glasses and normal, you know, flatware, probably actual silver flatware. Um, Now I'm waiting because I'm thinking at first, like, are they going to say this is like Rona related? Like, you know, they're trying to keep down infections and such. And we're just, you know, immediately incinerating all of the styrofoam paper, you know, dishes and what have you. So that way we don't have to worry about you know, the spread of infection. Maybe that's it. But she said every, nobody else had styrofoam. So that can't be it. And then to ask and for it to be that flagrant, like, so you just don't want to wash our dishes. Exactly, Negra. Hmm. that's one of those where I'm just like try to minimize the opportunities for white people to put food in our mouth like if this is the attitude of the person who is bringing me my food hmm. I just have to let in and again I think some of this is because we don't understand what it means to be white. Like I think for most non-white people, even in like a retaliatory sense, I don't think most non-white people would sit around and think like, Ooh, if I'm a barrister or whatever it is, 
I get opportunity like, you know, I'm going to dump, uh, you know, two day old milk in your coffee. You know, I'm going to fix your wagon just because you're white and I'm mad about racism. Like, I don't think most non-white people think that way or behave that way in life. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't. That's not my general sense. Uh, I think, therefore, I think it's very hard for us to process that this sort of like a white person would just see that you don't know you've never met you all don't have a vendetta uh you didn't you know scratch their car and run off or some type of thing nothing like that that they would just on site see you and oh i'm gonna spit in this person's coffee you know i'm gonna run this person's food all over the floor and then bring it out to them I'm not in fact i'm not even gonna put it on a plate you know i'll go grab a dirty dish and bring it to them or go get you know yesterday's paper plate and put it down that and take them their food that is so so that's all I can say is that is so Joe Fegan I mentioned that the second time this week I mentioned that uh, that book in his book uh, Two-Faced Racism he has an entire chapter just on restaurant racism and racists having an entire code about mistreating uh, black workers at restaurants mistreating black customers at restaurants not wanting to serve black customers complaining about black people sit in their section where they have to serve them all this is an entire chapter in mr fegan's book and i'm sure there's other research uh on it as well that's just one that you know we had him on the program and talked about all this book that i have um but i mean they have a lot they have whole studies that have come out repeatedly over and over about the just horrible experience uh, that black people get relative to white people uh, at restaurants and I'm sure that that is not even half of the story like we don't even know uh, all of the things that they're doing to our food and plates and you know just to the degree that you can I know talk, certainly if you got people if you're traveling if you were if like if you're a delivery person for a living you gotta start off in North Carolina and the end destination is Oregon totally different but I mean just in general purpose, I would really make an effort to minimize, if not outright eliminate all the, especially Waffle House. Like it should be like, psh, we are at least informed enough about racism that you never see a white, a black person at a Waffle House. Like my car broke down. I haven't eaten in 12 hours. I just want to use the bathroom. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need a cup of water. I know it's going to be in styrofoam or whatever. I just want to use the bathroom. That's all. And I'm going to be out of here quickly. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to sit down. Like that should be the type of understanding that we have about waffle house, but just eating out in general, like whew, it is a super risk every, and you can even think about it this way. And before I forget beautiful asking questions when you're with attempted family and if these are folks who don't normally do a lot of talking about racism and you're concerned about causing conflict, things, you know, getting a little bit rowdy, sometimes the safe thing can be not to take over and start making a lot of statements and you want to share everything that you've read from a book and give your analysis of the situation or what you would have done. Just ask one question. If you have more than one, I would just ask one question at a time that can be awesome just to get them to think they're talking 
they're engaged and they're just getting to process what happened in that situation and questions generally makes you think and that can be a good thing if they're already talking about it that might mean that they're willing you know to think about different aspects of what happened especially if you're just asking a question sincerely you're not you know what do you think about <laughs> doing it in an aggressive manner where just trying to learn like I've seen where that can be very effective and can keep the dialogue you know super uh, constructive sincere no conflict um, but I think it can also be thought about like this presumably this is the conduct of a racist right I don't even want to wash you niggers dishes what if she had just brought their food on a dish and still maligned their food but you don't know lots of racists are refined like that like that would be one way to think about it like for us maybe even for them that's why I said it can be great to just ask questions because I mean hey you have a lot of white people it's 2022 I can't be that flagrant about it and just come out and bring you a styrofoam cup however we can take this plate and dip it in the toilet before we bring it out to you and you'll never know in one sense she should be had where they should be happy like man if they hadn't done that we wouldn't have known we could have you know just eaten our food and gotten sick later on or you know anything and not known in one sense like wow we got a really big reminder from maybe this was a, a signal from the creator like be more alert about what you are eating be more alert about where you go to eat and definitely no Waffle House uh, anything folks need to get in before we go folks uh, spectating ready to get back to eating the leftovers or hanging with family all of the above Can I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. And I and Gus, I wanted to add, um, when I had asked that question uh, about the experience, uh, the, my younger niece, she just kept um, looking and paying attention like she was learning. Uh, you know, I wanted to add that detail, you know, because the uh the younger generation and what's going on in the schools and everything um you know i haven't spoken to my sister very much about the issue of racism i think she has a different approach about it uh well me and my mom attempt that mom talk about it uh but as far as like siblings and everything and i know this can be common in a lot of uh uh black families you know um black family arrangements and whatnot. Um, but my niece was paying close attention to that, to, uh, to the victims, um, sharing their experience. Like she wanted to learn more about this and she didn't really say too much, but I can just tell by, you know, her paying attention, um, you know, and, and, and just to add also, he, the black male, he just said he just could just notice things on, you know, how they were looking at them when they walked in to the business establishment, you know, the Waffle, the waffle House, you know, that he just, this is the, the verbiage 
I, I could just notice when I when we walked in that they didn't want us there, you know. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to just add that, and, and that's all I wanted to share. Thank you. Man, we had much obliged um, caller in Florida. Children are intelligent. Um, Dr. Welsing used to say that she's a third generation physician, child psychiatrist. She used to say that all the time. Children are super intelligent. Their brain computers are hyper functional metaphor. Um, so I'm not surprised at all to hear that she just wanted to sit and listen attentively. And, you know, this is her family. Of course, she wants to hear, you know, what's happening to you all. Um, if this is something that had an impact, you know, on her direct relatives and they're talking about it and trying to process what happened. But I mean, that's the sort of thing where someone, a young person hearing that might impact them forever, where they say, oh, I'm never going to Waffle House, where they will remember that. That'll be the story that they're telling their child. I do not ever go to Waffle House. Matter of fact, try not to eat out. Never know what they can do to your food. Like that sort of thing can stick with you for life. Just hearing that as a young person, like, wow, I never even thought about that. They can mess up because, like I said, I don't think most non-white people, we don't think like racist man, racist woman, racist child. I just don't think most of us are sitting around. What can I do to mistreat a black person? Oh, I know. I'll get their food. Oh, yeah. I'm throwing I just don't think that's how we, you know, function. Our brain computer just doesn't operate in that manner. So I think it can be difficult. We're just not even processing that someone would do something like that, especially unprovoked. So whew, bravo. That is uh, maybe one young budding counter racist scientist right there. Just getting that sort of information about the seriousness of the problem we are facing and no Waffle House. Um, the other component that is so going to say common should be a better word that is that is the system of white supremacy like I think many times uh, I'll quote Dr. Kanban like he said if you are eating a lot of craziness like all kinds of sugar sugary beverages Kool-Aid and all the rest of it McDonald's and french fries and cheeseburgers and all that that's you know what your standard diet is and you are drinking alcohol smoking cigarettes slurpees 7-eleven jumbo hot dogs and all that you might miss out on certain signals just because you're not feeling your best if you're not sleeping well all of the things that racism does to take us out of our correct functioning you might miss signals from the creator signals to keep you safe signals about things that are about to happen what you should do what you shouldn't do decisions that you should make you might miss this information cues from the creator some people you can believe it take it or leave it doesn't matter um, in my view when you walk into an environment and you get that sense like wow it seems like everybody is looking at us like we're not supposed to be here that right there like is a set I've heard this from so many listeners because I've been saying this for years about people saying, hey, man, let's not go out to eat. I know. And I, I feel you. I didn't like to cook myself. Many people don't enjoy cooking because that means you got to wash dishes. You got to do grocery shopping and got to be over the stove and all the rest of it. Hey, they're trade offs. You don't have to do any of that. You can just go to racists and take your chances with whatever they want to serve you. 
in addition to there should be some reverence. I think that's one thing about Thanksgiving. There's supposed to be some reverence for food, right? That should be every day, not just Thanksgiving, having some reverence for the food that nourishes and sustains your body spiritually, mentally, all of the above. Anyway, a different counselor, she said she went to went out to eat and there were individuals classified as white present. I don't think she was informed that this was going to happen, but they went out to eat. They took a picture and there was artwork on the wall, literally with a gun and the gun was pointed. So it was aimed at the black people. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the white people orchestrated it deliberately so that they would be sitting in that way, although I guess it's possible. But I am saying I would think about that. Like, why am I going into a restaurant to eat, to nourish myself where there is artwork to white violence and weaponry on the wall? Like, what sort of energy does that give off while I'm trying to eat my meal? People, the people that are generally getting shot are me. Ahmaud Arbery, that's what we just been talking about, right? Kyle Rittenhouse, that's who's got all the guns. Why is that something I want to be reminded about while I'm eating, much less the barrel is pointed at me. That's the case anyway, right? Public enemy. Rachel in New York, did you have a commentary you want to get in before we wrap up? Oh, no, I just wanted to add that um, if we do go out to eat, would it be best to go to maybe a non-white restaurant? Absolutely. Um, I know that was something that Pam uh, bragged about all the time. Pamela Evans Harris missed greatly. Uh, she would brag about that. She would find uh, different restaurants that, that offered uh, healthier foods uh, in Chicago, especially restaurants that were operated by black people. Uh, and she would brag about trying to patronize them, especially if they had really tasty food, healthy, yeah, healthy, tasty food. Um, but yeah, like I don't, uh, eat out myself. Uh, but here when I do eat out in Seattle, Ethiopian restaurants, I love them. They have tons, uh, of vegan offerings and tons of them. All of them that I know of, uh, are black owned. Uh, so absolutely. If you can do that spectacular, uh, that's, you know, practicing some, uh, counter racist economics uh, and, you know, not having to give all your money over to white people for food and hopefully minimizing some of the uh, opportunities for poisonings uh, as well. But yeah. And, and again, if, if you can't find uh, black operated businesses, non-white operated businesses that you trust that have tasty food, then again, I think it would be way better develop a healthy relationship with cooking having reverence for what you eat, what you put in your body that sustains you. Uh, and cooking, cooking doesn't have to be a really laborsome activity. You can get a crock pot, you can get a blender, uh, depending on where you are. They have tons of options at the grocery store where you really don't have to invest a lot of time uh, in cooking and you can still eat really healthy foods uh, year round, really, especially if you a blender, really simple items uh, that can go a long way to you having really great meals and not having to do a lot of uh, hard work and uh, or even a lot of hard cleanup, actually uh, blender crock pot. Those are, are two simple ones where you can really get down, eat really well, minimal cook, uh, clean up. Uh, and it really does not require a lot of uh, sweating and elbow grease uh, in the kitchen. But uh, again, the trade off, you can do all that or 
just continue going to the Waffle House and roll the dice like Russian roulette. That's the metaphor I picked deliberately. Continue to play Russian roulette and have the white chefs serve you your coffee or brunch, dinner, Thanksgiving grub. Everybody's straight. If nothing else they need to get in. grand uh hope everyone if you i guess are traveling uh so envious uh attempted black dad took his children out to utah go this is so beautiful out in utah racism white supremacy notwithstanding but it is really really pretty out there um if you are traveling uh be as safe as you possibly can i think uh golden was hanging out with us so envious she's about to be going off to uh, Jamaica, lots of fruity drinks, man. Lots of fruity drinks uh, for Gus T. Uh, spend some time, lots of time at the beach for Gus T. Take pictures for us. Um, but travel safely if you are, you know, trying to get back to your uh, area of location. I still advise no unnecessary travel. It is so, you know, volatile, chaotic right now. And then the weather element is just starting to be factored into. So, lots of things to consider if you're going to travel I suggest no unnecessary traveling sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism holiday season uh, it's going to be lots of wackiness now to like 2022 so try to uh, use your brain computer make great decisions be mindful about where you're going to be going I would still be avoiding large gatherings and such but uh, if you go out and someone is being uh, hostile and loud, it is time to go. Uh, it is no time for verbal confrontations. You should be thinking that this person may be armed. Uh, in fact, this person might have an entire armed gang at the ready. If you did not leave your residence prepared to die and or kill, exit. If you're going to be driving you are sober, you are not on the cell phone, and you are buckled up, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>